Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, End of the Line or a New Birth, the Future of Marriage and Family in the West. Please welcome Roger Severino, Vice President of Domestic Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Good morning, everyone. I took a ski trip this past winter with my entire family in tow and everybody getting dressed in the ski clothes or too hot, they're too cold. And as we were going up to the slopes, I passed one of those very expensive baby strollers. It was deluxe. It was black and had some metal piping around it. And it looked almost like those 1950s baby carriages, right? So they were making a, a fashion statement. It really caught my attention. And then I look inside of it, <clears throat> seeing uh, a smiling face on the other side of a dog. It was one of those cute toy designer dogs that I'm sure the person spent a whole lot of money for. And it was a gentleman that was sitting there with his baby stroller and their baby dog. Of course, a lot of things ran through my mind at that point. One of the questions was why would somebody make those life choices where they would spend so much resources on a dog when there were no children around? It's the other key point. Well, that raises a question. More fundamentally, why are you here? And that has many different levels of analysis. You're possibly interested in this topic. You care about the future of our country. Something about the married birth rate caught your attention. You know the demographics. Here's one rather frightening one. In 1980, my generation, women who are 25, 71% of them, we're married. 71% of women by age of 20, 25 were married. 48% of them had at least one child. Now those numbers, of course, are dramatically lower. Far less than 30% are married by age of 25. And half the number of women have babies, 24% at that age. Something has happened. Why? So maybe you're here because you're interested in those sorts of questions, but I want you to consider another why are you here analysis. Why are you here? Well, because your mom and dad made a thousand different life choices influenced by 10,000 different cultural, economic, and policy choices, uh, influences that led to you being here now, which means the decisions you're making will influence the next generation that may be sitting in this auditorium. At the rate we're going, it will be about half the number of people would be in this auditorium. And just think about that. Half of the classrooms you went to would be empty, not to mention what's going to happen with Social Security. But is there something about the West that is worth passing on? I think there is a sign of hope and a sign of despair. When I see the material wealth we have around us, 
I wonder, what is it all being spent on? And the beauty of what we believe in Western culture, the summary is Athens, Greece, and Jerusalem, right? Those Western values. Do we still believe they're worth passing on? So as we go through these panels, the first panel is going to be on some of the factors that go into those demographic questions. We'll have a special event with the ambassador of Hungary, which has been a beacon of sanity on these questions. And then we'll have a final panel on policy prescriptions. As we go through and listen to those wonderful panelists, I want you to be thinking, what can you do? What is your part? Because you are also part of those demographics and you have quite a say in the future of our country as well. So for our, per our first panel, I'd like to introduce Jay Richards. He's the director of the DeVos Center for Religion, Life, and Family. And also he will introduce his federal panelists. Again, this is the first panel on the demographics behind our crisis in population. Thank you. Welcome, Jay. Great to see all of you here this morning. So at Heritage, we think this is one of the defining questions um, of our era. So we're not going to debate whether dem demographic decline is a good thing. We don't think it's a good thing. So there's, of course, a set of people that thinks the fewer children you have, the better, because you're consumers and carbon footprints and all that stuff. Um, the purpose of the, the conference this morning is to say, OK, what happens, assuming this is a bad thing, which we do, is there something we can do about it? And of course, Heritage is a public policy uh, think tank, along with many of our allied think tanks, also concerned about this issue. We're interested in public policy solutions, but before you can come up with realistic policy solutions, you have to ask a couple of questions. And so in this case, the questions would be something like, okay, what exactly has happened to the birth rate? Why did people quit having children? In particular, why did people quit getting married or getting married as early, uh, uh, earlier and having lots of kids? Why did they quit doing that? And then the question is often not asked, why do some people continue to have lots of kids given all the demographic changes that have happened in the last century or century and a half? If we want to have good policy solutions, we, we want to address those questions. And so that's the purpose of this first panel this morning. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by three experts that have done research specifically on aspects of these questions. And I'll just briefly introduce them. They're going to each give five minute uh, opening statements describing and summarizing their research on this. And then we'll spend the rest of the time in conversation here on stage and, and with the audience. First up will be Preston Brashear, who's a colleague here at the Heritage Foundation. Preston is a senior policy analyst at the Herman Center for the Federal Budget here at Heritage. Catherine Pakalik is the director of social research and an associate professor here in DC at the Catholic University of America. And Delano Squires is a research fellow with me in the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family, also at the Heritage Foundation. So please join me in welcoming first to uh, the podium, Preston Brashears. All right. So I used to attend a church in Kentucky, and we had young kids at the time. And I remember pretty distinctly when babies would cry in the church, the, the pastor would always reassure the parents, don't be embarrassed. I, I, I enjoy that, that sound because those are signs of life. 
And so I think ultimately what we're talking about today is the signs of life in, uh, in the de developed world at this point, not just in America. And so I'll talk first just about where we're at uh, in terms of kind of the, the numbers and the data. Um, and then I think we'll get into some of the, the, the deeper issues as we go along. But uh, just, just raw numbers. So the total fertility rate in the United States is about 1.7. So that means the average woman has about 1.7 kids in her lifetime. Um, the replacement level fertility rate would be 2.1. And so there's a big gap there that if, that if we continue along our current trend, then eventually populations will start to decline. And it's not just in America, it's in the entire developed world, really, uh, with the exception of Israel. Um, in the OECD, uh, the average is about somewhere in the 1.5 to 1.6. So actually, as bad as things are in the US, they're actually a little bit worse in a lot of the developed world. Um, and in some places, it's dramatically worse. In South Korea, the fertility rate, the total fertility rate has actually dipped below 0.8. So as bad as it is here in the US, uh, they ha are having less than half as many children as we are. So you can imagine the population decline that they're in store for. So I want to jump into the, let's see if I can get this to work. Uh, and I know these are really small, but uh, one of the things that jumps out to me and one of the things that I want to kind of highlight here is, uh, is, is that there seems to be a connection when I look at the numbers, and I think it's clearest when you look at the US example, par partially because that's kind of what we understand uh, and what we're familiar with. But when people are optimistic and when people are feeling good about the way things are going, when people, and I think that's both economically and culturally, uh, that's when people have tended to have more, more babies, when women have tended to have more babies. And so you can see on this, this graph, this chart that in the orange, that's Gallup's survey of people's satisfaction with how things are going in the United States. And this is going back to the late 1970s, and that's just when the survey started. And you can see there, there, there tends to be a trend uh, where as the, and it's lagged a little bit, uh, and this is a moving average, and it's intentionally done so because I don't think people form families overnight. Uh, but as people tend to be more optimistic and about the way things are going, people tend to have more babies. And I think if you take it back even further, if you look at the Great Depression, there was a big drop in people's fertility rates. People were not feeling particularly good at the, about, about things at, at that time. After World War II, uh, people came home and the, the baby boom lasted for a very long time. And part of that was, I think, culturally, I think people were, there was a level of social cohesion that people had. Uh, and I think people were obviously pretty um, pr kind of riding on a high. We just beat the Nazis. Um, so things were pretty good kind of culturally in that sense. Um, there were obviously issues, but, uh, and then economically, I think w things were, were on the upswing because the rest of the world was so dependent on the United States to rebuild. And so you had this big baby boom. Women were having three to three and a half kids at that time. So it was a big uh, swing up. And then in the 60s, I think you have a big cultural decline. You have the JFK assassination and the Vietnam War. And the biggest thing probably was the proliferation of, of birth control and the sexual rev revolution. And in the 70s, you start to have uh, more economic issues, I think. So there's a big economic decline in the 1970s, perhaps some, some additional cultural issues as well. Um, but, but that, you know, at the time of Jimmy Carter's national Malay speech, there was a, we were at a low. And the total fertility rate at that time was about 1.8. And it actually dipped a little bit below that. So they weren't much higher than they are now. And then there was a bit of a resurgence in the 1980s as I think America kind of got its swagger back, uh, especially in the late 80s. We beat, back, we beat back inflation. We started winning the Cold War and so forth. And, and then where you see the big drop off is, is after the Great Recession. So economically, culturally, I think there's been a, a decline in the last 15 years. This is 
this is most of the OECD countries here. And so the other thing I wanted to get across is there's a there's kind of the the appropriate peer group to compare the United States against when you're looking at these things and where you can get some insights is looking at developed countries. So you might say, well, aren't the poor countries, aren't they the ones having the most babies? So maybe there's this trade-off that we need to have. Uh, we need to sacrifice our economic prosperity and that'll allow us to have more babies. But I think what it's important to understand the, the trend that you see. And there's this kind of this transition period that all developed countries go through where fertility rates are, are steeply declining as they're developing. And then they tend to flatten out. And so where do they flatten out? I think that's an, an, an interesting issue. And then where are the exceptions where it doesn't just flatten out? So they're flattening out somewhere in the range of 1.3 to 1.8. Um, and there's a, just a handful of examples of countries that have not really followed that trend. One of them is uh, the United States I mentioned. And then there's Denmark, Sweden, France, where they've also had kind of resurgences in fertility rates. So you can see the United States is in the red. And it's really interesting if you look at what's going on in these countries at these times, when they have the big declines, that's when they're kind of really embracing socialism. And although we don't think of Denmark, Sweden, and France as being particularly you know, right-wing countries, they actually had, uh, they had swung towards conservative governance during this period. So Denmark is a great example. They had socialist rule for 11 years straight during that period. If you look in the, at the orange line there, where it's declining, and then things, when things are starting to bounce back, it's literally a one-year gap from when conservative comes comes to power. Conservative governance comes comes uh, when conservatives come to power, and the fertility rate starts to rise, and it matches up exactly 1982 to 19. 93 and then 1983 to 1994 when you see that rise in the fertility rates. So I know I'm out of time, so I have a few more things uh, to discuss, but I'll, I'll pass it off to the next panelist. All right. I want to start my remarks off today with um, a song. I want to see if you all are familiar. So when I, when I was growing up, and this is probably for anyone who's like 35 or over. You, you all probably be familiar with this. So you know you're in the schoolyard, and there's Chris and Christina, and they like each other. And we're all fairly familiar with how this goes, right? Chris and Christina sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, first comes, then comes, then comes baby and the baby. Okay. So that was a generation ago. So now what we have, and, and I'll, I'll get into the data here, is Chris and Christina staring at their screens. T-E-X-T-I-N-G. First comes sex, then comes baby, then comes marriage, but that's a big maybe. That, that is where we are today. Um, and one of the reasons, that we're going to talk about a lot of trends today, but one of the reasons is that I, I would argue is that 30% of Americans today are now religiously unaffiliated, the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S's, right? Why is that important? It's important because religion gives people a worldview. It gives them a lens through which they see the world. And as it relates to, to marriage and family, and again, let's be clear, this is gonna be reiterated throughout the day, but at the Heritage Foundation, we are interested in increasing the married birth rate. We don't wanna make Uncle Sam husband and father to millions and millions of households, and millions and millions of households. So the married birth rate. So when religion declines, um, there are a lot of dominoes that fall with that. I would argue that our sociology and anthropology flow, flow from our theology. So 
what do you get when when the views on marriage change? Well, you move from marriage as a covenant to marriage as a contract. You move from marriage as a lifetime commitment to one of convenience. You tuck away words like duty and obligation, and you enhance the idea that marriage is all about my personal fulfillment and making me happy. So as religion has declined, I would argue that part of what has filled its place is our involvement in partisan politics. I think for a lot of people, their political positions, you know, how they see, have shaped how they see the world now. So they see the lens often through a political, they see the world through a political lens. And Preston mentioned the sexual revolution, second wave feminism, have provided certain messages to the culture in large, but particularly to women. And here, here are some of the messages that have been provided over the last 60 years. Um, sex is not primarily about reproduction, it's about recreation. Children are a burden and an impediment to careers and economic prospects. Marriage and family are important, but our true purpose is in the workplace and you know, with our careers. This is why you hear the language, particularly around abortion, about children, babies, as a consequence of sex, right? As opposed to the expected fruit of reproduction. When my granddad went out many years ago and he planted corn in January, when he came back, he didn't reap sweet potatoes in June, right? So when you have sex, this is what babies result. A 2021 Pew Research Center a survey found that 44% of childless adults between 18 and 20, 49 say they are unlikely to ever have children. Now, 60% of those respondents say they just don't want to have kids, but 15% attributed it to what I would call existential reasons, climate change, the state of the world. So again, our views around marriage and family have just changed. Um, and obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll get into why that is, but a, a few more data points to leave with you. Um, the median age of first marriage in 1960 was 23 for men and 20 for women. By 1990, it was 26 for men and 24 years for women. And in 2020, it was 31 years for men and 28 years for women. This, there's some differences you know, in terms of race and ethnicity, but basically everyone gets married later than their grandparents did. So on a macro level, we went from marriage early and often in terms of the number of marriages in the country to later and less. Because obviously if you start, if you get married, let's, let's, I'll use the guys, let me pick on the guys for a minute. If you get married at 37 and you have your first child at 40, um, you're probably not going to have, you're probably not gonna get to 10 kids in the context of marriage with one wife. Um, and, if your child follows your path, you become a first-time grandparent at 80 years old. Um, so think about what that means for, for you know, the future of the country. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave with this. We, we talked about marriage. Um, in terms of children, 40% of all births now are, are to women who are not married. So the non-marital birth rate has gone up significantly over the years. And one of the challenges, and I'll close here, and we'll probably get into this later, is that now we're not just talking about marriage and children, we're talking about what is a man and what is a woman. So 
the second waivers would have said we went from patriarchy to matriarchy, and now we're in the era of thatriarchy. And, and that alone is worth its own conference. So I'll, I'll stop there, and I'll pass it on to my next panelist. Good morning. So I'm going to describe for you the results of um, a project I've been working on now for four or five years. But it's, it's, I think, really valuable information for this particular conversation we're having this morning, which is so important. So I'm going to say something really shocking. The study of low birth rates has focused entirely on low birth rates. <laughs> it should shock you. Um, <clears throat> the reason this should shock you is because um, we need to study healthy people to learn about immunity to disease. But these kind of low birth rates, lowest low birth rates, we used to call them sort of the demographic winter, and, you know, whole nations kind of contracting and <clears throat> families failing to reproduce. Um, only now recently we've had permission to start calling this a disease or some kind of national disease. Um, so I'm glad we all have the permission to do that. Um, but what is the principle? The principles that we learn about immunity to disease by studying who's healthy, right? Who, who isn't succumbing to this sort of problem? Um, so actually, about four years ago, I traveled around the country and I went to 10 American cities and I talked to a whole bunch of people who had a bunch of kids and kind of said, like, why are you still having a bunch of kids? Haven't you gotten the message? You know, 1.7 is the number, um, but you look like you overshot 1.7 by a significant margin. Um, so it turns out that, um, as, as Preston pointed out, um, you know, so what, what do we know about those people that are not suffering from that kind of um, contraction? Well, you know, Israel is really stands out in that regard. Well, what's different about Israel? Oh, okay, so that's very important, what's different about Israel. So that's kind of the, um, the summary of what I have to tell you. But it's very important to put this into words. So we know that these, these people who are not suffering from uh, lowest low fertility are likely to be pretty religious. Um, but here's the thing, the American public policy debate currently that we're really just, is just getting off the ground, assumes, uh, first of all, that highly religious people will obviously have children. Well, okay, those are obviously kind of, I don't know, cultish or brainwashed people, or they just are automatons that just do this thing, but that their reasons could not be understood, could not be generalized or made relevant for policy. Like we're over on the other side of the, the building, we're talking about kind of like how we can incentivize stuff and we don't think we can learn anything from these people. Um, and the other thing that um, the policy debate tends to assume is that we can incentivize anything we want. We can incentivize anything we want. So I think that my findings challenge both of these two myths. So I talked to 55 women in two to three hour interviews. So this is very long interviews where I'm really trying to figure out what's going on. Out of 55 women that I spoke to, 54 out of 55 had very deep beliefs that childbearing is the highest good of their domestic community. The highest good of their domestic community. The reason they came together, the reason they got married, what about the other one of the 55, the, the, the one, the potential outlier? Uh, well, it turns out that in her family also, she had five children. They also believed that children were the highest good of their community, um, but it wasn't driven by religion. In her case, it was driven by um, her husband really wanted a large family. And so why did she go along with that? She didn't want a large family. Well, she loved her husband. She said, the only thing I can give her, give him, sorry, the only thing I can give him and so really, these are transcendent goods. People are driven by um, beliefs shaped by religion, shaped by love of family and tradition, and shaped by love. All right. <clears throat> because these are the highest goods of their domestic community, a shared understanding, this is what we're about as a people, um, these, uh, these kinds of goods were ranked above um, the, 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 the rather large personal costs. 
And so women describe these kind of costs and benefits. Um, by benefits, we mean sort of values. What's the, what's the meaning of this activity to you? And the costs were really um, largely personal. The kinds of costs to having children have a lot more to do with you know, things you give up, right, rather than sort of um, the, the amount you have to pay at the end of the month. And so the women I spoke to, these are the people that are immune again, as I said, from this disease. Um, they had big enough things. They had big enough things, big enough reasons to do this to counterbalance the rather significant things you're giving up, like sleeping through the night for 10 or 15 years. I mean, right? I mean, so we sort of think we could sort of policy nudge people to kind of take on the task of getting up in the middle of the night for 15 years. I'm not sure we can do that. I think you need something really big on the other side of the equation to do that. Um, so let me give you one example of the kind of language that I heard. And I could give you lots and lots of these examples. Uh, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to give you uh, one. Um, well, I have Tina, who had six children, who said, well, we wouldn't have started having kids at all if the whole Catholic thing hadn't come into the question for us. So that was a big part of us even entering into parenthood, was the Catholic thing. This was a family that had converted. Um, I had Esther who said to me, well, you know, my understanding from when I got married is that all blessings come from God and that the three big blessings that we talk about in Judaism are children who bring us pride and joy and follow in tradition and good health. I don't feel like you could have too much of any of those things. These are blessings. They're God's expressions of goodness. We could put up roadblocks to not get the blessings. And sometimes we need to ask God to make ourselves proper vessels to receive blessings, but those are the biggest blessings. Right, so um, Esther was living on a very small income. Um, they had nine children. So my concern is that to exclude these kind of testimonies or this kind of research from the conversation that we're having today um, means that policy, the policy solutions we come up with will be in danger of being kind of solutions looking for a problem. Um, so to be sure, the problem is low birth rates, but policy can only really work on the cost side. And we've been assuming that this is a cost problem. But my research says it's really a demand problem, right? So the, the reasons to do this are not high enough for most people. They're not high enough to overcome the very significant personal costs that um, childbearing requires. So that's what I have for now, and um, look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Well, I can tell you that you each said what, exactly what I was hoping for, at least, because I think it sets it up perfectly. And so, Preston, I know you didn't get to uh, fully describe the scenario, so I want to allow you to do that. And you, I don't think you mentioned that the, the, the data uh, Preston is drawing from is actually from a research paper that he and several other heritage colleagues are we're hopefully days away from having it, right? We kind of hoped it'd be at the printers by now and we could pass it out, but it's it, you'll be able to find the data. So I want folks that don't follow this to understand. So I'm going to describe how I think uh, what you said is, and you can either correct or, or fill out. So uh, there's this, uh, at the century time scale, there's this massive demographic change if you and it's a shift from a kind of an agrarian to an industrial and urban and service economy and so people have entirely different incentives if 50 or 60 or 70 percent of the population are on farms in which children are actually economic assets in a way right so um so there's part of that is just that fundamental shift that we're not we're not going to overcome that so that's just sort of baked in uh, but what you were suggesting is once that's happened, there is some wiggle room and some variation around uh, above and below what we what replacement rate is in the industrialized world. And those correlate to certain things. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that's what's 
interesting to me when you're looking at this. I mean, absolutely, there's a complete there's a night and day difference when you're looking at agrarian type societies. You can you can look at a lot of countries uh, in in Africa and some of the less developed world, and they all have fertility rates still that are in the fours and, and fives and su substantially higher. Uh, but unless we're willing to go back to being agrarian societies, that's not really the relevant question for us, I don't think. Uh, and because because it is such a universal problem, Israel being the lone exception, uh, and I think there's unique situations there, um, that, that we, we are, I guess, working with a more limited capacity here. And so even the very best of the, of the, the fertility rates uh, you know, talking about the um, policy solutions, no country has done this yet. No state has a has a replacement level fertility rate. So there there is there is absolutely um, interesting insights there, and then and then I think really can tell us some things not to do, especially. Um, but um, and and one of the things not to do is I don't think you want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, and that you don't want to to sacrifice economic prosperity. Because I think when people are looking around and they 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 say to themselves, "Man, things are getting worse." And my, my own situation is bad. I'm looking around at, at people around me and things don't look very bright and things are gloomy. They're probably less likely to have kids in that situation. And, but, so that's part of the, part of the question now, I think. Um, but I think what Kath, Catherine was touching on is, is it's really, I, I think she has a, a very great point in terms of uh, people need to, to have the, not just look at the cost, but look at the benefits, especially at, at the individual level. And are we transmitting these values anymore? And I think that's where a lot of the, the, the problem is right now is that we've uh, we stopped transmitting those those values where we, people value uh, children and value life in the way that they used to and value religion. Um, and so as conservatives and as religious people, are we taking it upon ourselves to make sure that, that we're transmitting our values to our kids? Uh, because guess what? Guess who has lots of kids? It's it's the conservatives. It's the it's the religious people. It's the people that do have those traditional values. And so if, if we do our part in a way and continue to transmit those values, I think that's where the where the solution is. So Delano, you raised you're great at sort of naming the elephant in the room. So I'm going to let you even describe it in a little more detail. Um, and so you you pointed very specifically to the difference between the birth rate per se and the married birth rate. And our emphasis here on raising the married birth rate. Now that's fraught because for one obvious reason, um, neither states nor the federal government any longer specify natural marriage when we're talking about legal marriage, right? So that's already complicated. But just say a little bit about why that, why does it matter? Why does the married birth rate matter for the well-being of children in society? Sure, I mean, for, for generations, we, we talked about the benefits of children growing up and married to two-parent homes. Largely, I think that, that was framed in economic terms. So we wanted kids to grow up with a married mom and dad because they were less likely to be in poverty. And that is true. But one of the things that happens as women's uh, earning potential incomes have gone up, that economic incentive, I think more and more people say, well, that's not really you know, a big issue anymore because now you know, a woman can raise a child on her own. On her own. But uh, a dad is more than just a paycheck. Um, so, so men... Uh, fathers contribute um, socially, spiritually, emotionally um, to their children's development. But but here, here's the other thing, um, because I, I know there are some some you know people out there, um, some on the center right, at other think tanks, who say that we should separate, that men should focus more on their direct relationship with their children and less on on marriage. So as a, as a guy. 
think more about being a father, less about being a husband. But the thing is, uh, men and women need one another. And, and, and in marriage, again, you're talking about a, a lifelong commitment. There is no till um, in sickness and health vow among co-parents, right? That, that's, that's not happening. So I think, you know, it's important for the family unit. And this, this actually goes back, I would argue, goes back to um, the, the issue of religion. Because I, I would argue again that whatever the system we're considering, the designer is the definer. So, so as a Christian, if, if I say, okay, God designed marriage and designed it in a particular purpose, if we want it to function at an optimal level, we have to go with that design. When we start to experiment and say, well, no, we have a better design, I think what we've seen over the last 60 years is a result of that. And, and, it's, and I'll say this again, the government, federal, state, local, is a terrible husband and an absent father because it just has too many households to support. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, so Catherine, I want you to say a little bit more about the setup uh, of your research. This wasn't, you didn't set this up from sort of talking to your friends because people may not know you yourself are a mother of many children uh, and our social circle has to have uh, people, right? So you could probably have found 50 or 60 people to interview, right, in your circle, but that might not have been all that great statistically. So, I mean, how did you set this up? Um, yeah, it's funny. I still, I still get people saying, "Hey, if you need anybody else for your, for your research, you know, you, might, you should talk to my sister. She's really great." I kind of look at people like, "No, no." The idea here was actually to sort of see if this, if this thing that I, I, I certainly in my own circles in life, I know a lot of a lot of people who've chosen to have larger families, um, and, and so yeah. So no, the, the idea was to go out and see if this generalizes. If you could go into to cities in the country, and this is what we did. We, we would we would email, um, you know, large identifiable churches of different faiths, um, homeschooling communities, places where we knew there would be families, and then we sent out. You know, this is a description of what we're up to. We're looking for people who would describe their childbearing as purposeful, and we were looking for larger families. Why larger families? Um, not because you couldn't be purposefully having two children, but we were trying to get people who had, um, you know, didn't accidentally have above replacement size families <laughs> we wanted people and 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 why you know because we really wanted to know what's driving people what gets you there what what gets you to like you know drive a really big ugly car and you know and like kind of hem your life in, in all kinds of ways and that's a really after um and so that's what we did so we, we went into different cities we circulated this this you know sort of standard flyer we had people who wanted to participate then submit you know the sort of the standard program i mean this was an irb um sponsored program from the university, we had people submit surveys um, to tell us about themselves. And then from among that group, we had about 50 or 60 people apply in each region. And then we kind of looked through and selected a group from those applications that was reasonably balanced for kind of different different religions, different faiths, different ethnic backgrounds, and that kind of thing. So that was our, that was our 55 person sample. Um, and yeah. And then what about sort of religious variation within that? So you mentioned there's yeah. sort of ethnic variety. Um, how, how did this distribute? Yeah, so we largely the women in our sample are are um, evangelical, Baptist, Catholic, Mormon, um, Jewish. We tried very hard to find women of no faith who fit this <laughs> description. Um, we didn't succeed. We really tried hard. I mean, we worked at the National Atheists Association. <laughs> the guy, the guy, <clears throat> believe it or not, the guy came back to me and said, we've really been looking for people with a lot of kids in our membership directory, and we can't find any that meet your, meet your 
your thing. And he said, but I've, I found this study and I think this must be the reason. He said, it looks like people who have a lot of kids tend to be religious. <laughs> he told me, and I, said, I said, I know, I know that's why we've come to you just for the interest of, so you didn't have anybody for me. Um, so the, the least religious family that we, we found in our study was um, kind of a, a reform, reform Jewish family that was kind of nominally Jewish. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so we have a pretty, a pretty good sample. We did try to find some Muslim families, but given the, the timing that this took place, we weren't able to, to, to find any, but they're, they're out there. Yeah. And I think we would have found similar things, uh, similar things there. Yeah, so I'd I'd, there needs to be a graph somewhere showing the, the inverse correlation between uh, atheism and number of kids. I'm, I mean, I've just sort of intuited uh, that something like that's true, but it'd be nice to have the data. Would it be okay if I continue? I mean, yeah. the, the thing that I expected to find, but I didn't expect it to find it as clearly as we found it, was that you had you had Mormons in Washington State and Jews in Wisconsin and Catholics in Maryland saying almost the same thing about what it meant to accept children as a blessing from God. This was not a story about differences between religions and how they believe about birth control or the fa or family planning. That didn't. I asked everybody, but that. That isn't the story, it wasn't the story. What the story was about, um, thinking of childbearing as the most important purpose of your life and the, and the reason you come together as a married couple. And it was astonishing how similar their language was. And these are people who never hear the same preaching, in some cases do not read the same scriptures, right? But they had this sense that you know marriage is designed by God and given us by God and not something we would mess with and this is what we're up to, this is my purpose in life really, really powerful. So Preston, I'm wanting to return to, to your analysis and you describe like, what is your sense of the relationship between economic policy and this question? So is it, I mean, the sort of most robust view is that actually the, with the right economic policy, we can really move the needle or it could be, well, it matters some on the margins or actually it'd probably be easy to mess up economically and maybe hard to move. So it's easy to get the needle down, but not up. I mean, what do you think? I'm asking you to speculate, but you know, that's really what I'm wondering. Um, it's absolutely easy for governments to mess things up. Um, and, and <laughs> you can look at the South Korean example as an, as, uh, this is not exactly on the economic front per se, but, but, but I think that was part of what was driving it is uh, that South Korea used to have, in 1960, they had a f total fertility rate of, of, of almost six per woman, and now they're down below 0 0.8. And a lot of that was driven by the government actually actively trying to, to bring down birth rates. They, they had not just, uh, you know, they, they were obviously a lot of, uh, you know, uh, spreading of, of, uh, of birth control uh, to, to different communities and family planning. Um, but, but also they were, had active campaigns where they'd say even two children is too much for overcrowded South Korea. And so kind of a, a lighter version, I guess, of some of the absolutely brutal stuff that you see in China, but the same sort of idea that they were pushing it and governments are pretty good at pushing, uh, birth rates really low. They, the, the policies that are specifically designed to increase them have had a lot less, uh, increased fertility rates have had a lot less success, I think. Um, in terms of, uh, what... I think because because I do think you can help things because like I said I think when things are going well I think that is and that that's culturally and that's economically I think that that does have it make a difference uh, even if it's not going to drive us up to a fertility rate of three uh, but some of the things that, that that seem to to 
show up for us when we're looking at, at the state level, some of the factors that seem to matter. Uh, is housing affordable? Uh, and, and I don't mean this in the terms of uh, of do you have programs to to make it so, but I'm talking about places in the Midwest. You have higher fertility rates in, in, in these places because the typical income is enough to buy a, a typical house. And a lot of times the programs that are designed for affordable housing lead to exactly the opposite. Um, so affordable housing is part of it. People working is a big part of it as well. Uh, when When people aren't working, I think that's connected to the like purpose that they have in life. So part of your purpose is to work, and that's also a biblical principle, part of it, and same as, as having children. Um, so I think there's a connection there that you see that when people are, are engaged in the labor force, that tends to have a, a positive effect. I think at the macro level, at the, at the micro level, it's a little bit and I think that you made a crucial distinction here that economists don't always make, but that it's not just do they have dollars coming in, because presumably through means-tested welfare right, programs, you could get an unemployed person uh, up above poverty level. It's not the same thing as having meaningful work and the kind of what, the effect on, uh, on their outlook. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. I think absolutely. The uh, One of the things that, that does seem to show up is... so. so we just looked at some, you know, did some simple regressions at the state level, and one of the things that, that showed up was just are are people working? What is the, what is the labor supply per working age adult? Um, and and that seemed to be an important factor. So, um, so that and and actually, uh, and, and the housing is is important as well. And then obviously the cultural factors. I mean, those are important uh, important factors, and whether people are having children. Catherine, you want to weigh in on that? Um, I just want to say what I think is complementary to what Preston is saying. If there was one, if there was one thing you remember from my research, um, one thing is that religion policy is family policy, mm. and we are probably going to miss the boat if we stop to think. So governments can do an awful lot to make it harder for churches to thrive. So. I would want to say, yeah, let's examine the obstacles to family life, the things the government might be doing to harm and reduce rates when they don't mean to, or maybe they do mean to. But what can the government do to actually stop injuring the robustness of religious communities? In what ways does the church, sorry, in what ways does the state deprive churches of their integrity, of their strength? Religion policy is family policy. Thank you. So Delano, actually what I was going to ask you sort of follows on that. And so is there something... Um, as we're embarking on this question, both at Heritage and the conservative movement in general, but is there, is, are there mental roadblocks on our side that we need to get over if we're going to really think clearly about this? What do you think? Yes, and, and, I, and I do think as much as you know, we on the conservative side talk about um, gender and gender ideology, um, I think everyone in, in the country, left, center, right, has... Um, been shaped in terms of how we think about marriage, family, children, um, in, in such a way that I question, for instance, whatever policy prescriptions, cultural prescriptions, religious prescriptions that we think would increase the married birth rate, if that results, let's say, in a somewhat significant drop in women's labor force participation, let's say, from 25 to 35, would conservatives see that as a net win? So if more people are getting married, more babies are born um, within the context of marriage, but fewer women are in the workforce than otherwise would be, how would we react to that? 
Because if, if we see that as, oh, no, we, we can't have that. We, um, everyone must have everything all at the same time. Then we're, we're going to be in trouble. Um, and that's one of the things, and, and I hate to say it this way, but in, in some respects, even the right believes that androgyny is equality. Um, even in the way we talk about family, right? It's, parenting is nice, but mother's mother and father's father. And a lot of times that is very gendered. And, and in fact, I would say this, I think kids are the most sexist people in the world because even at six, seven, eight months, a child will respond differently to his mother than, than his father. And certainly once they get to three years, because I have two three-year-olds at home, um, you know, they, they interact differently with me. So I think part of what we have to do is, as conservatives, recapture those, those differences between men and women and say, um, th though that complementarity is, is a good thing, and that's according to God's design. So I, I just hope that we are steady and stable because we may get exactly what we're looking for, and we may, I want us to consider what some of the consequences um, of those prescriptions may be. Well, and that's, that's going to be an open question policy-wise, right? So um, I'm going to leave that hanging in the air, actually, and turn uh, to Q&A from the audience, actually. So it's now your turn. We've got 15 minutes, and someone has a microphone floating around. So um, right down here first. This, this guy right here. <laughs> No, of course here. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Richard Stern, I run the, the Budget Center here at, at uh, Heritage. Catherine, I had a question for you. So, so in the surveys you were doing, obviously, you're talking about the importance of religiosity. In those intimate surveys you were having, what did people say were the most common reasons why they were religious? What brought them to faith or what kept them in their faith? I would almost like to say that there, um, there were two types of stories. There were people who converted and people who didn't. <laughs> so, um, those are the two ways you become very religious. Um, no, so so actually, I think um, I'm going to tell a lot of these stories in the book that I'm writing. Uh, I, I don't think there's a typical way that people convert. I think a lot of these stories are idiosyncratic and and um, and interesting. Um, but certainly, some number of the conversions or the or the staying religious that you asked about relate to being attached to thriving religious communities, right? So I could say churches in general, but of course I'd like to include our Jewish brothers and sisters um, that uh, either growing up in a church community that you really loved and drew a lot of strength from and people stay, they like to stay. Um, and a lot of people bumped into them. They moved into a neighborhood where they heard, oh, there's a great church here. And maybe they were planning to have 1.7 children. They moved into this great church and they looked around and kind of, kind of thought, hey, you can do this? Like, you're allowed to have more than 1.7 kids? Look at that. Like, no, I heard this. I mean, I heard people say this, that you know, they'd never considered it before. They hadn't seen it. They moved into a church for the sake of church and then saw it. So I, I, I did get this large message about community, um, but not community in um, like a national sense, but in a very sort of lived local sense. Oh, this is a community where people will bring you meals for three months after you have a baby. That's meaningful, yeah. Yes, over here. Hi, I'm Meg Kilgannon with the Family Research Council, and this has been a great panel. Um, I have a question for the whole panel and then one for um, the doctor from Catholic University. Um, do, do have, have we as conservatives missed the boat when we buy into the equality narrative between the sexes instead of focusing on the nature of, of complementarity, 
the the need of one sex for the other and the the great enhancement of love and benefit for society when the two work together and join their complementary natures to each other. And then um, for, for uh, Dr. Pakulik, do, do you have any plans to do a follow-up study on the children that are produced by these families and if they make these same choices into future generations? I'd love like a 40-year nursing study of this kind. That would be so great. So anyone on the panel to the first question while Catherine's gathering her thoughts on the second one? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was the point that, that I was making, right? Like, I believe men and women created by God, equal in dignity and worth, different in form and function. Um, and, and so that, that's sort of the, the high-level picture. But even, you know, on a, on a very practical level, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell a, a really quick story. Um, last year, my, our firstborn, our daughter, her birthday's in January, so it was a big snowstorm last year. Um, we had a lot of fun. We had the kids outside. We, you know, had a sled going down the hill. Nighttime comes. Um, I bring in the shovel. My mom, my sister, my wife, the kids were there. I said, in the spirit of equality, I'd like to know if any of the ladies would like to take the shovel and, and dig out the cars from 10 inches of snow. And they all said, oh, no, no we don't. So I said, okay, well, I, so I, I don't start from the position that equal means the same. Um, and I think a, a lot of conservatives buy into that notion that men and women have to be exactly the same. Um, and, I, and I think that that's a colossal mistake. Um, yeah, uh, yes, so that's a great question. Um, a little bit will come out about what, the in, in my current research about what people um, already see in their children, but yeah, to go down the line and interview each other. It's a great suggestion, so thank you for that. Um, I also want to say we, we do have plans to talk to the men. Um, we got some oblique information about the men, and these are really quite unusual men. Um, to, your, to your point, though, really briefly, um, I want to say something that I, I found it useful. I mean, as an economist, we think, about, we think about the great gains that come from specialization. And if you look at the labor market, right, in this country, certainly, um, prior to 1960, more or less, it looked like men and women were pretty specialized, right? So men, men specialized in work and women specialized in having babies. Right. And um, what do you see after 1960? Actually, it's kind of, kind of interesting. You see, women are now diversified, right? So myself included, uh, we go to graduate school and we have these you know, nice careers. We, we, we now diversify. We, we split our time between childbearing and work. Um, and what are men doing? They're doing a lot less work. Well, this is interesting. What, are, what else are they doing? Did they, did they kind of co-specialize into having children? Well, they didn't, and they can't. Right? So actually, we know that um, looking at the time use surveys, um, a lot of men are doing less productive things with their time. Well, why? Well, because their partners are also making a living. <laughs> so, um, so obviously, just from I mean, abstracting from kind of moral conclusions for a minute, if you take all the people who are potential mothers in a country and you de-specialize them, you're just going to have less children. It's like a mechanical outcome. It's mechanical. So, so yeah, I do think we're missing something by failing to think about the virtues of specialization. Yeah. Um, uh, hi, I'm Dinah Furch, Scott Roth, uh, with, with the Heritage Foundation. And my question is this. So it's a fascinating panel, and it seems as though uh, Back maybe in the 50s and the 60s, there was a higher birth rate irrespective of religion. So it seems to have diverged after then. 
And one of the differences seem to be that women are investing more in education and they want to reap the rewards, those returns to education. And uh, that's why they are having fewer children. And I was wondering if there is any way to roll that back. In other words, is it possible to put the toothpaste back in the tube once they and the trend towards more education and the correlation with fewer children is true, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Okay, so Preston, that's definitely teed up for you. And I just want everyone, maybe the non-economists, to understand the idea. So uh, as women become more educated and uh, are able to do many more things in the workplace, right, their, their earning potential goes up. And so that's an opportunity cost that a woman, say, in the 30s didn't have, right? She didn't, so, the, so women that are having lots of kids now are giving up a larger opportunity cost. And so then the question is, okay, one would be how do you put – do you put that back in the bottle? I, I don't know how, but uh, but also that we just need to realize that's a fact of the kind of 21st century. I think the one th one of the things that I would uh, emphasize to that question is, and we, we talked about how late people are getting married nowadays. Um, uh, the, the, that nowadays, uh, 28 and I forget 28 and 31. Um, so women are, are waiting a lot longer. Men are waiting a lot longer. Part of that is is because of people going to college. And so I think I think education is a big part of that, and not that we shouldn't say that women shouldn't be uh, go, going to college. That's absolutely not what I would say. Um, but but what I would say is we should be making the most use of the time that people are being educated, whether that's whether that's when they're going through school, whether that's maybe an apprenticeship program is is a, a better idea for you than than going th through school for four years and getting deep into debt. You go deep into debt, and then you're like. How am I going to have a kid? I can't even pay my student loans. Um, so all all these things that uh, that we we I think uh, we put people on this one track uh, where they think that the way to succeed in life is to go through college, uh, take out some loans, and then pay those off. And then maybe when you're like in your 30s, maybe you have time for a, a kid or two. And I think that's that's we shouldn't be thinking we shouldn't be uh, pigeonholing people into the same route. I think it, I think pe people need to have. Um, I think people make better decisions than when the state is trying to incentivize people down a, a specific road. Jake, Jake, can I can I say something as the woman um, on the panel? <laughs> so so I, but I want to say not so much from my own perspective, but the women that I that I spoke to in my study, all of them had gone to college. Many of them, the majority of them, had some form of graduate education as well. I had a full-time pediatrician whose husband was a stay-at-home dad. Uh, these were the story here was not that you have to put the toothpaste back in the bottle, um, but because the opportunity costs are bigger, you need to have a bigger reason to do this. So the people in my study were people who said, "I have this very powerful reason to do this. It typically comes from religion and kind of you know things that supply the meaning of life for people." Um, and so that's the question: is today don't put the toothpaste back in the bottle, but foster the kinds of things that give people this reason. And so most of them had some kind of career or professional work, but the way they put it was they fit their career into a larger narrative of marriage and childbearing, rather than fitting childbearing into a larger narrative of career. Thank you. Okay, we're going to have time for one more. Hi, Brenda Hefer with the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for this. Um, there was a recent documentary release called Birth Gap, and the thesis of that documentary is that the primary thing driving low fertility rates is not that women who are mothers are having less kids, it's that 
women aren't becoming mothers. In other words, the number of women with zero children has just skyrocketed. And about 85% of those women actually do want to be mothers. So what seems to be happening is they're not finding someone in time that they would like to be married to and have a family with to one, get married, and then to have those children that they would want. What do you think of that thesis and those demographics? And what would be the policy solutions to maybe um, part of it is what has happened to our men and how they have fallen behind? Yeah. Delano, you want to start? Anyone can answer this. Yes. um, I... I've read two um, recent stories, one from the Washington Post, one from USA Today, specifically about, and this may not seem related, but it is related, the dearth of black male sperm donors. And these stories are about women, typically black women, who, well, exclusively black women, who, who want babies from black men, but they don't want husbands. They just want reproductive material. And part of the reason is many of them, now some of them are same-sex couples, and that's a a different story, but some of them are single women who may have had a relationship in in their mid-20s, but again, the message from a lot of families across the board is don't worry about relationships, don't worry about marriage, get your education, concentrate on school, build your career, and when you're ready for that, it will be there. And I, I, get to, I, I grew up in New York City. I'm used to the trains running once every five minutes. If you grew up in Iowa, if, if you miss a train at 8 in, in, in the morning, you may not get another one till 8 p.m. So what's happening is that there are women who are now in their late 30s and early 40s who want to start families, and they have to scour databases at sperm banks to find a, a mate, quote, unquote, that's suitable for them. Um, so, so even though this is, you know, sounds extreme. I think a big part of it is is the message from the culture that t- to, to Catherine's point, career and education are much they, they are much higher priorities and that you fit family and relationships into those into those priorities. And and what we found is that when you presume that the things that you want will be there exactly when you want them, um, a lot of people find that not to be the case. Anything from either of you? That's actually a really good thing on which to end. And so please join me in thanking our panel. And we do have some additional seats in the front if people in the back want to filter in and get nice and comfortable. And we're on time. Okay, you can sit down. Um, recently, I had the pleasure of visiting for the very first time Budapest, Hungary. I was blown away. I was at CPAC Hungary, and I spent a lot of time just walking around a mile and a half, two miles even, to get from the hotel to the event because I really wanted to get a flavor of the culture of the city as much as I could in my few days there. I was struck by the beauty of the place. Beauty is everywhere in the smallest details, not just the amazing cultural heritage of the Gothic buildings, but even the more modern ones. I thought it'd be a post-communist wasteland, but it wasn't, it wasn't. Even the new buildings had those little details that people cared about passing on beauty. And then I made a point to visit 
the local parks. Now, in my earlier introduction, I mentioned the quite disturbing phenomenon of dogs and baby strollers, which you see in the United States. Happy to report I didn't see a single dog in a baby stroller <laughs> in Hungary when I was there. And in fact, we should add to the statistical analysis the dog to child ratio in parks. I'm serious. We should have somebody go out to public parks in major cities and count the number of children versus the number of dogs to see uh, a, a indicator of the cultural health of the place. Hungary has a great baby to dog ratio, right? Compared to the United States. And it, I think it underlies a deeper view. And why did so many people from heritage go to, to Hungary? Why was there a CPAC Hungary to begin with? It's because it's a beacon of sanity in a sea of insanity. Hungary has taken real firm, active, hard steps to preserve its heritage to specifically say the patrimony of Christianity in the West is something that is worth preserving and passing on to the next generation and has taken concrete steps to increase the married birth rate. When you get off the plane in Hungary, one of the first things you see are signs saying Hungary is pro-family and they put their money where their mouth is and in the leadership of Viktor Orban uh, and the government on down, they have made the hard choices and I've been one of the few countries in the world to reverse the slide in the drop in the buried birth rate. To discuss the miracle on the Danube and what Hungary has done to restore Western culture, I have the pleasure and honor to introduce the ambassador from Hungary to the United States, Szabos Tokas. Please come join us. The ambassador will give brief remarks, and then we'll have a short sit-down talk and then questions. Ambassador. Thank you very much. A very good morning to everyone. And the, the stress is on the brief, <laughs> brief remarks. And Roger, thank you very much for uh, inviting me and my colleagues. My wife is here, uh, my colleagues from the embassy. And uh, uh, before everything else, I would like to express our gratitude to the Heritage Foundation for, in the first place, organizing a, a discussion uh, an event which is entitled uh, The Future of Marriage and Family in the West. Even the title that you picked up uh, is very controversial in some circles because the, uh, the radical liberals and the globalists, uh, it raises eyebrows because we are talking about exactly what uh, they would like to completely eradicate and dissolve. Uh, marriage, family, past, identity, heritage. And as a matter of fact, uh, we Hungarians have been fighting this cultural war for a couple of years now. And uh, it puts us in a very weird situation. Uh, as I noticed, I'm the only foreigner, uh, uh, which is indicative that uh, we Hungarians and our government is one of the last conservative governments, the last of the Mohicans in, in Europe. And uh, this is what we have to face. And strangely enough, I come from a country which has a long history over 1,100 years, 1,100 years. And strangely enough, uh, we would like to uh, live for at least another 1,100 years. And uh, we have to figure out how we can do that. And according to our knowledge, uh, one day we will all die. And uh, uh, we don't know about too many people who prevented that. And 
if we don't uh, guarantee that there should be children who are born into our community, then our culture, our identity, our country will disappear. And we are not a large uh, population. It's uh, a bit less than 10 million in Hungary and five, uh, six other uh, million in, in all over the world, including in this country. We have a very weird uh, language. Uh, only Hungarians speak Hungarian. <laughs> no, nobody <laughs> understands our language. So many other communities in Europe are either Slavic or Indo-European, Germanic. So they more or less understand each other. We, we don't. We are very unique. And uh, uh, for that reason, of course, we have to think about how we can also preserve the, uh, the fiber of our culture, our society. And our history is very long, so we don't have time to go into that. But you, you must understand Hungarian history in order to understand our family policy. And uh, we lost a lot uh, during all these centuries. Uh, we had all kinds of people trying to invade the country and destroy us. There was the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Uh, they were there for 150 years. And half of the population was killed. And we had devastating world wars. We lost a lot. Uh, in the wars, uh, in the Holocaust. There used to be a vibrant Jewish community, Hungary, Hungarian Jewish community, and still very vibrant. And, uh, you know, the, and the communism, 50 years of communism. And the communists, in a way, were very similar to the very radical liberal globalists, internationalists. They wanted to completely uh, erase national identity. And as a matter of fact, the communists were not very much uh, promoting marriage and childbirth. On the contrary, the culture of abortion was very much embedded into the Hungarian society. That, and of course, uh, parallel to that, they want to destroy another very important uh, pillar of our identity, that's religion, moving away from religion. If you're not religious, you don't care about abortion, and you, you somehow you have, a, you, you have a different understanding how you should live your life and what is uh, the, the value of life, why you live, what is the meaning of your life. Are you responsible for your own life or the life of a potential child or not? So it's very complex, and it's only 30 years since we became free and independent after getting rid of uh, uh, Soviet uh, communists and, and everybody else. And we were given a chance once again in our history that we can decide how we want to live our life. And as a matter of fact, uh, Hungary has had one of the, the lowest uh, level of birth rates in 1981. A huge number of abortions and, you know, people moving away from the, from the churches, especially the generation who were young during the communist years. Uh, and that's a problem. So we had to, we, had to, we don't cancel our culture. We, were, we would like to revive our culture. And, and thank you, Roger, for saying so nice things about my, my country, the capital city, and I encourage everyone. That's the job of an ambassador to promote tourism as well. So please uh, <laughs> go to Hungary. Visit and see it with your own eyes, so don't believe me. Uh, now, uh, I'll try to give you a couple of, uh, a couple of important elements in the, in the motivations behind our family policy. And uh, I, I will be very boring as well, giving you some numbers if I have time. If I don't, then uh, you, you can ask questions from me. Uh, so it's no wonder that in the past couple of years, we have become well-known, even in the United States, for our uh, very strong conservative pro-life and pro-family, especially pro-family uh, policies. And, uh, it's another, really, to represent a country which is located in the West. Uh, we are a member of the European Union. We are a member of NATO. Security is very important for us, uh, uh, especially in the light of the current 
very serious uh, uh, security crisis, the war in Ukraine, a country which is our imminent neighbor, with Hungarians living in Ukraine. And so it's a very complex issue for us. Uh, and uh, we really wanted to, to do something. Uh, and in 2010, the current uh, conservative government was given a chance once again, uh, because they were, we were, the conservatives were in, in government already between 1998 and 2002, and then were eight years in opposition. We had a left socialist liberal government for eight years. And then in 2010, the conservatives came back again through democratic elections. It's important. Although our prime minister is always labeled uh, in the liberal global press that he is autocratic, dictatorial, whatever, whatever. And they say the same about Bibi Netanyahu in Israel, who is having the same, the same approach to identity, culture, marriage, family, having children. But it's a different discussion. It's, uh, we don't have time for that. Uh, but you can ask questions, of course, all the time. Now, at the end of the day, we managed to increase the fertility rate that it should, it, it, uh, uh, it's going up. It was uh, around uh, very low. It was 1.119, 10, 15 years ago. Now it's 1.52. Of course, two should be uh, uh, the desired and above that. Uh, the number of marriages doubled, and uh, we also reduced the abortion rate significantly. It's a very sensitive issue, your Roe and Wade debate and all the political impacts, uh, you know the story. It's also sensitive in Hungary. Now, uh, despite these uh, economic hardships uh, that we are facing as a result of the war, as a re result of economic downturn, inflation, uh, we kept uh, all our policies and financing these policies in place. And in 2022, last year, I can give you a figure, we spent uh, almost 6% of our GDP on families. Now, this is globally very unique, the only country in the world. We spent 2% on NATO and military. So three times more on families and children and encouraging people. You know, you cannot regulate, you cannot tell people that you must have children. But uh, the first thing what we did is that we, strangely enough, we talked to our people. And we asked them that, what do you want? And it turned out from surveys that uh, for the majority of the Hungarians, the young Hungarians, it's not uh, only the career and the education and uh, individualism, selfishness, which matters. But for them, the source of joy and happiness is uh, having a child or more children. So we realized that the majority of the Hungarians look at that child not as a burden, but as a blessing. But uh, economically, of course, we, we had to support them. For very obvious reasons, we are elected to be leaders of, the, of a community in order to secure the future of the community. And if children are not born, the community will disappear. Of course, there are other options, and this leads us to another very sensitive and huge topic of discussion and political debate, migration or immigration from different places. Some countries, uh, especially all our Western European countries, uh, without exception, really, they decided that uh, they will not encourage childbirth and family, but they say that they will bring over people from other parts of the world. And as you can see, that because of climate change, because of security crisis, because of demography problems, scarcity of water, food, whatever, the southern hemisphere is moving to the northern hemisphere. And uh, some countries decided that, yes, we need workforce, we need people, and they should come. 
it's another big political debate if uh, can you support illegal immigration? Because uh, we understand if something is illegal, then this is not legal. And you cannot some, support something which is illegal, then of course they might try to have some uh, ways and means how to make a phenomenon which is illegal legal, so to legalize that. But it's a huge political debate in your country as well. And you are facing the same problem, of course. You, you, I don't need to tell you the story. <clears throat> now, but there's a big difference among many other differences uh, uh, in between immigration issue or problem in, in the United States of America and in Europe, that what we realize is that the majority of the people who come to your country would like to become American. Because there's something that you identify as American and they would like to live an American life. Uh, whether it's manageable or not, it's a different issue. But those who are coming to Europe, they don't want to become, become European because they don't exactly know what it means. They just come to Europe and they would like to continue their life in Europe which is fine if they, have, if they have good intentions. But even that, even in that case, they, they dissolve the, the fiber of traditional European identity and way of life. Uh, and of course, uh, that's rather a big problem that it's not only people with a good intention. And uh, there are statistics, uh, and of course, there are evidences that many terrorists came to Europe uh, disguised as, as migrants, refugees, whatever, and they they committed crimes, uh, brutal, heinous crimes, Bataclan, Paris, and Nizza, and so I can give you a lot of examples. Now, all in all, uh, we, well, I'm moving away from the traditional and uh, the original topic. Uh, so we spent a lot of money on, uh, on uh, child uh, bearing and family policy. Uh, and we have made it clear that above everything else, we will protect the children from uh, harmful ideologies and empower the parents when it comes to the children's upbringing and education. And you can imagine how popular we became in the eyes of our political opponents, even globally, uh, when uh, the Hungarian government and the Hungarian parliament, where the government parties in the majority, of course, they put it in the constitution that a marriage is a bond between one man and one woman, and the mother is a woman, and the father is a man. <laughs> uh, it seems very simple. Uh, and, you know, we got a lot of criticism for that uh, from everywhere, from all over, all over, all over, uh, media, European Parliament, wherever. Just a couple of uh, everybody was laughing at us or tried to ridicule us that these, are these people are crazy. And they are, you know, conservative, and they are uh, xenophobic, and they are racist, and everything that you can imagine. And why do you have to put something so evident in the Constitution? And then a couple of weeks earlier, the European Parliament adopted a resolution, a non-binding one, but it's a resolution, law, part of European law, that uh, they, they wanted to give right to men to give birth. <laughs> right. Biotechnology, I don't know. I'm, I'm a diplomat. I'm not good at that. But, you know, uh, this is a kind of response. And uh, as time goes by, uh, developments and, 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 you know, and all these uh, well, things that are happening around us uh, prove us right that we had to do that. And the Hungarian society responded positively, as a matter of fact. Uh, we had a referendum in 
2022, uh, when we ask people uh, what they think about all these, and uh, the results confirm that 90%, 90% of the Hungarians, adults, agreed that the sexual education of the children is the exclusive right of the parent. We adopted a law, which we call the Child Protection uh, Law. Uh, our political critics call it an anti-LGBT law. But this is not an anti-LGBT law. We want to protect our children from a propaganda, usually by LGBT groups, which has no place in the schools. And this is a huge debate in your country as well. And I'm a foreign diplomat. It's not appropriate if I tell anything about what is happening in your country. But you know it better than me. You are American citizen. I don't vote here. And I don't pay tax here. Uh, I hope. <laughs> I hope I don't pay tax here. Uh, even now this case, this Hungarian law, is in, in front of the European Court of Justice. They took us to the court, other EU member states. Uh, and because we respect the rule of law, we will decide whatever the European Court of Justice decides. We don't have too much illusion. But we will continue our policies, because it's a strategic policy. Political parties come and go, things change in the world, but we have to be strategic about this. This is beyond politics. This is beyond interests. I mean, that's, uh, uh, that's our future. Uh, where we really have to put focus on the uh, on the children, and I don't know how much time I have. I have a lot of statistics here, and very indicative, very telling things. But uh, I don't know if I have two more minutes, and if you don't mind, I will read out these statistics because they are indicative and they are important. So it says that since 2010, we have seen the highest increase in fertility rates in Europe, uh, plus 22 percent. Uh, reaching an EU average, which in turn has fallen compared to 2010 in Europe, so different direction. By 2022, the fertility rate has reached an almost 26-year high, 1.52 now at this stage. Uh, over the past 20 years, uh, unfortunately, the number of women aged between 20 and 39 has fallen by 21%, which makes the higher number of births uh, compared to 2010, even a, a bigger, a greater success. Uh, if the birth rate has remained at its low level in 2011, 136,000 fewer children would have been born in the past years. So it's a very slow, it's a very slow uh, development and increase, but the trend has turned and we are going in the right direction. And uh, the response from the society is extremely good. We are giving a lot of uh, uh, tax uh, subsidies and tax, uh, you know, kind of uh, allowances to people who are uh, who decide to give birth to children. If you have four children in uh, in Hungary, you don't pay any tax in your life, zero, never, nothing. And uh, even uh, the women who who decide that they will have children uh, and. Uh, they kind of sign a contract with the, with the government, then they have to pay gradually less and less tax. So we are trying to give incentives to people in, instead of regulating uh, what to do. It, we say that if you want to have children, 
uh, and you don't uh, decide just because there are economic concerns, then don't worry, the state is there to help you. Uh, and we don't even want you to vote for us. We are not doing for that. But we would like to fulfill the duty that was imposed on us when we were elected to represent the community. And at the end of the day, the government turned out very successful because since 2010, the government was re-elected four times. Every four years, we have general elections. And this is one very important element, I believe, because uh, you know that's the most important for the Hungarians, obviously, that they want to have children, and there's a government there which is helping them to fulfill their desires and dreams. And we are trying to respond, of course, housing allowances, buying a bigger car. And, you know, there's a lot of statistics. If you are interested, uh, we have great material, uh, and <clears throat> which is not propaganda, as it is called uh, by our political opponents. But this is just a underlying, uh, uh, you know, proofs and uh, what we have been doing in, in, in Hungary. And uh, Hungary has really become a model for that. Uh, and we would like to continue that. Uh, uh, policy, and that's why we are uh, looking for global partners like the American Conservatives, and we are very grateful for the attention, for how you evaluate us. Nobody is perfect; we are not perfect either. But I believe that uh, this topic has really become a, a part of a uh, national and global political and public discourse. How can we preserve uh, family life, children, and marriage, and? I'm, I was very happy to listen to the previous panel, uh, how you see that. And only one thing which uh, stuck my mind that just yesterday with my wife, we noticed that somebody uh, put a shovel next to the fence in our garden. I don't know what it means uh, about uh, equality, but I have not seen any snow in Washington since I've been here. So nobody is at risk. I think I will stop it now, Roger, and then if there are questions, maybe it's better if I respond to that. Great. Thank you. Well, now you could see why Hungary is so special, and Ambassador Tokash is as well, and your Prime Minister Orban. <clears throat> it is very different in Hungary, and I actually met a couple expats, Americans, who moved there because they saw what was happening and it was so special. And there's a contrast and there's a lot we could learn from mutual exchanges. And uh, we do have similar problems. You mentioned immigration. We have an open borders crisis happening right now. Uh, Hungary does not. And those are based on policy choices and policy decisions by, by uh, differences in our leaders. Now. One reason why I think immigration would not be a solution to our problem in the United States is because we do not have an assimilationist model that's functioning anymore. When you go to school, you're not taught the American values that I learned as an immigrant uh, family. You, you don't get that anymore, so you don't have that national cohesion. Now, my sense is in Hungary, you do have a much greater national cohesion, and the pro-family policies you've put in place are helping build that respect for a culture of life and family. So is this, is this a new development where government policy is at play or is this something about Hungary itself? I'm trying to see what we can learn because in our earlier panel, much of it was based on the cultural factors as to why somebody 
decides to have a child. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, of course, as I, as I told you, immigration and how you respond to immigration has become one of the hottest uh, political debates uh, in United States of America and also in Europe, in the European Union. Um, the immigration crisis has become uh, especially evident uh, since 2015 when uh, tens of thousands of uh, people uh, arrived at the shores of Europe. There were a lot of tragedies, boats sinking, people dying, children dying in the seas. There was a case near the Italian coast, uh, uh, near Lampedusa, which was a triggering uh, uh, this political uh, and, and humanitarian and social debate. Uh, and obviously, uh, countries need to decide what to do with that. Now, we believe that uh, the, the Western world, the, the, the most developed world, need to have a response how to, to make those countries and continents more livable where a lot of people are trying to move away from. And it, it needs a very strong international cooperation because not one country can do it alone. And there are a variety of choices. Of course, you, you cannot stop all the security crisis, and there will be wars, unfortunately. Uh, we, Hungary, we had to face two major wars in the last 30 years in our imminent neighborhood. 30 years ago, there was the, uh, the war in the former Yugoslavia, the Western Balkans, as we call them politically these days, and there was an inflow of refugees. And the Hungarian uh, government at the time and the Hungarian people opened up the borders and their hearts because obviously these people were fleeing destruction and death. Nobody questioned who they are. Uh, they were obviously refugees. And we have the same problem now these days. Since the outbreak of the Ukrainian war, 1.5 million Ukrainian refugees arrived to Hungary. And as we are the first safe country, we don't even question their legitimacy to come in. We abolished all regulations, visas, whatever. They are refugees and they are pouring in. Now, the people who are coming uh, from uh, the south, south of the Sahara in Africa, let's say, or South Asia, or the countries where there is no security crisis, there is no war, but uh, there is a scarcity of food and water. So it's quite understandable that they, they want to leave a place where life is not uh, manageable anymore. But the question is that, uh, is it a basic human right to decide which country you go in and that you just go in and that country has to let you in? And that's the whole essence of the political debate. So instead of uh, supporting these illegal immigration trends, we would like to have a decent political debate on, on how to do it and how to resolve. And some countries might decide that they would like to encourage uh, immigration for the sake of their uh, uh, labor, uh, uh, market uh, shortages, they need more people to work, it's legitimate. And other countries uh, can decide that they try to do it uh, alone. Uh, we don't, I mean, I don't know how much the assimilation policy of the US works or not. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's questionable, and this is part of the political debate. Well, on, on one thing the immigrant population does assimilate to, and that is a low birth rate. Once the, the um, immigrants come in, you see the Hispanics, they start to go down to the mean within one generation. They, they follow the American birth rate. So that's, again, I don't see immigration being a way of boosting the overall American birth rate as well. <clears throat> but let me turn to your, some of the other family policies you've talked to. If, if a woman has four children, no income tax. Now, is that for the family or just the, the mother? 
No, it's the, it's the mother. It's the mm -hmm. mother who doesn't have to pay tax if uh, she has four children and she bears. But there are a lot of family allowances as well. And also we encourage marriage and we have exp uh, experienced that the, the birth rate uh, has increased significantly in marriages. So okay. not single mothers. So in uh, marriage. I, I thought I heard a statistic that your marriage rate increased by what percent since these policies? From 1.19 to 1.52. No, the, the marriage rate. Yeah, the marriage, it doubled. Doubled. It yeah. doubled in, in, in the, uh, for the course of the last uh, 13, 14 years. Okay. Since so. 2010, when we introduced <clears throat> these policies gradually. So it, is it that these policies have a preference for marriage, and how does that enacted? Well, of course, we, we also encouraged uh, uh, marriage because we, we believe that that's a bond between people that secure, of course, the the future of their local community and the bigger community and, and, and the country in national, but we don't discriminate. Uh, and we try to, of course, because life is very complex and sometimes uh, women uh, end up being alone and try to raise the, the children alone, so we have to give them the same or similar allowances. So there is a uh, uh, incentives for everyone. Uh, in, in, the, in the whole system, different levels, and that's why it's a very long and complex uh, uh, statistics, and of course, experts need to analyze that and, and see to that, but the, the general idea is to give incentives to everyone, single mothers, uh, marriages, uh, couples to, to raise and, and uh, bring up children, you know, a full range of uh, regulations. So if you are a single mother, uh, you you, are entitled not to work in the evening or nighttime, and you know it's just one example. So we uh, there's a there's a whole list of uh, different incentives how we do that, and especially the the tax allowances are one major element uh, where people feel it uh, very uh, directly uh, that uh, it's beneficial for them. And uh, if you are under 25, you don't pay an income tax. This that's another uh, element, but there's a long list really of, of, of all, all kinds of uh, policies so you you there is a long list if you were to pick one of the government interventions now there's heritage foundation government interventions is always a last resort for us what which one of the government interventions do you think may have been the most effective at increasing the married birth rate yeah probably the tax allowances I think <clears throat> probably the tax cuts and tax reduction which was very very concrete and very direct and very very visible for the people I think I have to ask them, but mm -hmm. but that's that's my feeling. Well, we will be watching very closely further developments in Hungary. We have a lot to learn in the mutual exchange, and we are out of time. So I'd like to thank you, Ambassador Tokic, and please guests. Thank you for the. Our next panel. Our final panel for the day is on the policy prescriptions. We've figured out, to a degree, what is causing the demographic crisis. We've seen what some innovative solutions have been attempted abroad in Hungary. What are some American-specific solutions? Uh, it is a difficult problem. Government is exceedingly good at destroying the American family. They may not be so good at restoring it doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying, right? So for this panel, we have to figure out what can we do because something must be done to change it, and we need to find the most effective ones that do have an impact. To lead this panel will be 
Paul Ray. He's a director of the Rose Center and was a former regulation czar under the Trump administration. Please welcome Paul Ray. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this important event. Uh, as Roger mentioned, this panel is going to take up a critical question. Can government policies boost the married birth rate and which policies would do so? Uh, to address that question, we have with us some immensely distinguished panelists to discuss the problems we face and possible solutions to them. I'm going to give uh, you only the briefest of biographies about each, uh, otherwise we'd be here for an hour just hearing all that they've done and we still wouldn't exhaust the question. Uh, so I encourage you to go online to learn more about them. Um, as I introduce you, please please come on up. Um, Robert Rector is a leading national authority on poverty. Uh, Robert, if you want to come on up. Uh, the U.S. Welfare System and Immigration and is a Heritage Foundation Senior Research Fellow. Uh, dubbed by some, uh, and deservedly so, the intellectual godfather of welfare reform. Uh, Robert, uh, Robert con concentrates on a range of issues relating to welfare reform, uh, family breakdown, and America's various social ills. Robert was a principal architect of the National Welfare Reform Legislation enacted in 1996, which for the first time required participants to work or get job training for their benefits. Robert joined Heritage in 1984. He holds a bachelor's degree from the College of William and Mary and a master's degree in political science from Johns Hopkins. Michael Toscano, uh, Michael, if you want to come on up, uh, is the executive director of the Institute for Family Studies. An alum of the King's College, Michael has served in leadership roles at his alma mater and also at the Manhattan Institute and the National Association of Scholars, where he was research director. He's co-author of an important book, What Does Bowdoin Teach? How a Liberal Arts Education Shapes Students. Rachel Gresler, uh, Rachel, if you want to come on up, uh, is a senior research fellow in the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget, where she focuses on policies that affect work and well-being. Um, Rachel has done extensive research and writing on issues uh, affecting families like paid family leave, childcare, and workplace flexibility. Before joining Heritage in 2013, Rachel was a senior economist on the staff of the Joint Economic Committee of the U.S. Congress for seven years. She completed graduate studies at Georgetown, uh, where she earned master's degrees in both economics and public policy, and she holds a BA in economics from the University of Mary Washington. And finally, uh, Lindsay Burke uh, is the director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, where she oversees Heritage's research on issues pertaining to preschool, K-12, and higher education reform. Uh, in 2021, uh, Lindsay was tapped to join Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin's Transition Steering Committee and Landing Team for Education, and was appointed to serve on the Board of Visitors for George Mason University. Uh, Lindsay also serves as a fellow at Ed Choice on the National Advisory Board of Learn for Life, a network of public charter schools serving opportunity youth. And she also serves on the board of the Education Freedom Institute and the advisory board of the Independent Women's Forum's Education Freedom Center. Lindsay holds a bachelor's degree in politics from Hollins University, a master of teaching degree from UVA and a PhD in ed po education policy from George Mason University. So uh, thank you all for joining us and uh, please give a warm welcome to the panel. join them here because it's a little more comfortable. Uh, so um, why don't we start with opening remarks uh, from each of, the, each of the four of you. I've worked on the issue of marriage and families for about 40 years now. 
Uh, so I, it's an issue that's very dear to my heart. And as the 1996 welfare reform stated, marriage is the foundation of a successful society. Marriage is one of the two most important factors in producing adult happiness. Marriage is the number one factor in promoting upward mobility of children. Marriage is a kind of universal social antibiotic that's extremely effective in dealing virtually with every problem that you've ever heard of or seen discussed here in Washington. For example, just one of them, the relationship between marriage and crime. If the marriage rate in a community, the percentage of families that are married goes up by one percentage point, the crime rate in the community, violent crime rate goes down by two percentage points. It's very difficult to find anything that's more effective and stronger in terms of producing social well-being in the institution of marriage. But for the last 60 years, the government has conducted an overt war against marriage in this society. It has done this through a welfare state, and by the welfare state, I'm talking about something that's larger than you ordinarily think about food stamps and things like that. It's a set of supports and policies that affect probably the bottom 40% of families with kids. It's close to half of all families. In this system, the, what, these programs, the welfare state, actively penalize marriage and they reward single parenthood deliberately and directly. They've been doing this for over a half a century and <clears throat> they essentially have ended up creating a population of women that are married to the government rather than married to the fathers of their children. As a result of these policies, you could look, for example, at the out-of-wedlock birth uh, ratio. The percentage of births are outside of marriage. When Lyndon Johnson started the war on poverty in 1963, 7% of children were born out of wedlock. When welfare reform started in the 1990s, that number had risen to 35%. Over destruction. And this was regarded at the time as basically an insoluble problem. But the good news is that welfare reform enacted in the 1990s brought this tidal wave of destruction to an end. It, it ended the deterioration of the family. And if we can see if I can get my charts here. We'll skip that chart. Here we go. Okay, so this chart measures the percentage of children living in married two-parent families. And what you can see, it starts uh, around 1960 at the beginning of the war on poverty. It's like a straight line. Daniel Moynihan used to talk, say this was drawn by, on a ruler. It's a straight line downward, the percentage of children living with two married parents. It goes down and down and down about one percentage point a year until the yellow line, that's welfare reform. All of a sudden the line kinks over and essentially has remained flat for 30 years. We stopped the decline of the married family through welfare reform. If you look at the dotted line, that's what would have happened if the previous pre-reform trends had continued. We would have an additional 9 million children today living in single-parent families rather than married two-parent families. This could be dramatized with this chart. This chart is the non-marital birth rate of teenage, teenage women. And what you see there is, again, you start around welfare reform, that, uh, around war on poverty, that's the red line. This thing skyrockets upward, okay, to the point when yellow, the yellow and green lines represent welfare reform. At that point, 
one in 10 children in the United States was born to an unmarried teen mother. This was also regarded as an insoluble problem. You could not do anything possibly about that. Welfare reform comes in with a message, you're not going to have a life on welfare. You are not going to get something for nothing forever. You are expected to work. You are expected to support yourself. And look what happens to that line. It instantly turns around and begins to move in the opposite direction and is now back down to where it started from. The this problem has essentially been eliminated in our society. Now, one might say, well, my goodness, there, was, there were 300 to 400,000 non-marital births to teens at that time. What happened? There must have been a huge increase in abortion that reduced all those births in the future. But this is the data there. The, blue, the, the left hand set of numbers are before at the time of welfare reform. The right hand set of numbers are today. The blue is the number of the out of wedlock pregnancies. Uh, and the green is the births and the reds are abortion. And what you see is that all three of those things came down together. You didn't have a reduction in births and an increase in abortion. And this is very important because it kind of violates the intuitive rule. Most people think, recognizing that 85% of all abortions are to non-married women, that if you were to reduce the non-marital birth rate, you would increase the abortion rate. And similarly, the left begins, if we, if we re increase the abortion rate, we're going to have fewer problematic births among poor unmarried women, right? It's a kind of seesaw, but it's false. It's not the way things happen. When re Roe v. Wade was enacted, it dramatically increased the abortion rate among non-married women. But it didn't bring down the birth rate. That went up even greater. They went up together. And when we did welfare reform, the abortion rate and the non-marital birth rate both fell together. Why is this? Why could that possibly happen? Well, if you think about this as a seesaw, what's critical there is the pivot of the seesaw. The pivot is going up and down, and that's driving these effects. And the pivot is the non-marital pregnancy rate. When Roe v. Wade came in, women had much greater sexual activity without being married. Everything goes up. When welfare reform came in and said, you, you can't go to do this forever, the, the rate comes dramatically down. Well, we won't do that one. So the reality here is that welfare reform was able to stabilize marriage, to bring the marriage rate up, uh, and, to, and to make the situation much better for families. What can we do, draw from the lessons from that for the future? The, the first lesson is that marriage, that government policy dramatically affects family structures. It affects it very broadly, not on just some narrow population of poor families. And that if you have policies that are designed to encourage marriage, in this case by saying we're not going to subsidize single parenthood as strongly, you get dramatic effects from that. The second thing is that, uh, so what would that mean in the future? If we want to strengthen marriage in society, we should strengthen the work requirements in all of our, our means-tested welfare programs, including, for example, food stamps. But also, we need to remove the marriage penalties that are within the welfare state. All 90 means-tested welfare programs penalize marriage in the sense that if a couple gets married, they lose welfare benefits. It's just like having a tax code where you wouldn't have the, the schedule for married filing jointly. Everyone would have a penalty 
when, when they marry together because their income goes up, welfare benefits go down. The typical lower income family can lose ten dollars or $12,000 of welfare benefits by the act of marrying. That's a horrible message to send, and all low-income families know that. We should remove those marriage penalties, and you can do that without expanding the, benef the, the cost of the system just by taking out waste and fraud. Going back, marriage is a universal antibiotic. With respect to birth rates, uh, married women are, uh, have twice the birth rate of, of unmarried women. So if you can stabilize and increase marriage, you will also, also automatically get an increase in the overall birth rate. Uh, we, what we shouldn't do is have a policy of trying to subsidize single parenthood in order to reduce either abortion or to produce more births outside of marriage. Marriage is an overwhelming good, and uh, we need to strengthen marriage, not neglect it, ignore it. Uh, back in the 1990s, the Republican Party took this issue up. It did this reform with the explicit intent of strengthening marriage in society. But for about 20 years, this issue has been punted to the side. It's now time to renew it. Great. Robert, thank you very much. Uh, Michael, over to you. Thank you so much for having me. It says a lot about the state of public policy that we have almost completely forgotten the broader legacy of family policy in the United States, which has been with us in one form or another since the American founding. Rather than doing something new by considering such things as child tax credits, we are under, what we are undertaking today is a recovery of an American legacy that was nearly wiped out of our memory by a regime of anti-family policy that was injected into the American system in the 1960s by Republican and Democrat elites alike. Consider the following. From 1944 to 1948, a series of laws were passed to create what Alan Carlson has called, quote, a powerfully pro-family tax code, close quote. In 1944, Congress passed a law creating a uniform $500 per capita tax exemption and then limited it only to household members related by, quote, blood, marriage, or adoption, close quote. According to a 1944 Ways and Means Committee report, by placing no cap on the total that a given household could claim, the act imposed a, quote, lesser burden on taxpayers with a large family and a greater burden on taxpayers with a small family, close quote. This pro-family tax code was developed further in 1948 when a Republican Congress pushed through additional tax reforms over a veto by President Harry Truman that raised the per capita exemption to $600. The upshot of this was that a married couple with three kids making the median national income of $3,000 would be relieved of any income tax. But Congress moved further by nationally introducing income splitting, which gave married couples the right to file jointly by summing their total income and halving it with each spouse taxed on only the halved amount. This provided major savings for families. And what was the result? Marital stability increased, divorce declined, the marriage rate reached a historic high, and fertility soared. Though there were clearly other contributing factors, the baby boom was energized by the tax code. This pro-family tax code was an extension of the pro-marriage, pro-natalist politics that was scribed, I'm sorry to say, into the bones of the New Deal as well. 
Against the vociferous protests of the women's movement at the time, the New Deal's jobs programs were tailored to directly target married husbands, especially married fathers, who were seen as portals through which to engage the entire family. Marital unity was rewarded in Social Security, too. A 1939 amendment boosted a man's retirement by 50% if at the age of 65 he still lived with his wife. What changed? Principally the minds of American elites, Republican and Democrat, who were looking to impose flexibility on the American family and liberate the individual from the strictures of traditional sexual morality. They did this in part by advancing no-fault divorce and other things, but nonetheless a total catastrophe for America. In a recent essay for the American conservative, drawing on the work of scholars Mary Ann Glendon and Nancy F. Cott, I called this new marriage regime, which we are contending with today, private marriage. Private marriage is a consumer good, relegating nuptials and fertility to mere lifestyle. Though the downstream benefits that private marriage provides to individual couples with their children are well documented, this marriage regime is not concerned with society more broadly. This is why under private marriage, lawmakers in the US on both sides of the aisle often flat out reject the idea that the government should be supporting marriage at all. I contrast this with public marriage, which has roots that stretch back through the American founding to the Catholic Middle Ages. Public marriage was protected by laws against easy divorce and laws which safeguarded fertility and sexual mores. It makes future citizens, raises them in excellent character for the common good, and it was lifelong. Divorce was only permissible under extremely limited circumstances and only after intense public scrutiny because in an important way, marriage belonged to the community as a whole. This was the marriage regime of the 1994, 19, excuse me, 1944 tax code and the New Deal. Private marriage has been built atop the ruins of public marriage. What does this have to do with pro-family policy today? Two quick points. First, as Robert mentioned at the end of his comments, marriage is the main driver of fertility. If you want to increase fertility rates, you increase marriage rates. No easy thing, obviously. But nonetheless, divorce, here, divorce therefore, is a direct threat to the marriage regime, public marriage, which can boost our national fertility. In the, 19, excuse me, in the 2019 American Community Survey, 68% of divorced men ages 25 to 55 and 43% of divorced women over that span were childless. Compare that with the currently married for whom that would be 25% and 26% respectively, though these percentages would include the divorced and remarried. But even so, the divorced and remarried bear less of the fertility load. As my IFS colleague, demographer Lyman Stone has shown, divorce and remarriage acts like delayed marriage. The longer one spends being not married, the fewer children one is likely to have. Therefore, as we seek to stimulate new marriages, we must also act to preserve existing marriages. But this is my larger point. There is a fundamental tension between pro-family policy seeking to strengthen marriage and family in a legal regime, no-fault divorce, that diminishes them. IFS is supportive of child tax credits with work requirements, supportive of eliminating marriage penalties and open to baby and marriage bonuses and other policies should political alignment make them possible. These can do an extraordinary amount of good, but we will get more out of them if the institution of marriage were not destabilized by no-fault divorce. 
Putting the political, legal, and cultural into alignment behind marriage is what has made the Hungarian experience so effective. In 2012, Article L of the Hungarian Constitution was introduced to enshrine marriage between a man and a woman. And divorce is not as permissive in Hungary as it is in the US. A constitutional amendment to do likewise in the US is dead in the water. Nonetheless, we must chip away at private marriage. Tightening up the divorce laws in red states would be a meaningful start. Thank you. Great. Michael, thank you very much. Rachel. Thank you. Um, pleasure to be here today. And I wanted to have to disclose at the beginning, I was laughing when Catherine mentioned the ugly cars. I drive one of those myself. And so a lot of what I will be talking about today is kind of having that lived experience and being in that right now. Um, so I'm going to focus today on work. Um, I do want to start by saying that when we think about marriage and families and the government's role in that, that role should be to enable everybody to be able to pursue the marriages they want, to have the number of children they have, they would like to have. Um, and before we start talking about taking resources from one person to try and affect somebody else's decisions and have them do what we want, there is so much that can be done to reduce barriers. I mean, the first principle here for government should be to do no harm. And so I think that there's a lot that needs to be done to get rid of the disincentives to get married and to have children. So I'm gonna look at work um, through three different components of it. And first is having a job and an income, um, having those opportunities so you can support a family. Second is having a balance between work and family. And third is looking at the childcare component of this. Um, so starting with work, obviously having a job, um, you need that to s support your family. And there's plenty of research that shows Having a job that has that upward trajectory makes men in particular more marriageable. So we want those opportunities to be there, but as Robert had mentioned, we have an increase in the welfare without work state. And this has particularly happened since COVID-19 with just massive amount of benefits that are available even without having work. And so I'm seeing this in the employment statistics, very discouraging trends. Um, it's been more than just COVID, but we've had a significant decline in employment among men. Another issue is education and the experience that you get that enables you to have a job that will allow you to support a family. Um, there, there's a lot of ways that the government is not helping. They have an unfailing record of failure across nearly 40 different job training programs that are crowding out better opportunities in the private sector. And then something like apprenticeships. That's a wonderful way for an individual to get experience and education for a successful career without paying for a six-figure college education in a shorter amount of time. Um, and so we need to be doing more there. There are apprenticeships, but they are limited to a government monopolized model that's really stuck in the trades and it hasn't expanded out. Um, the Trump administration tried, they enacted something that allowed industries to start their own apprenticeship programs. And this was flourishing, nursing, one of the areas that we need the most workers um, had started up, but the Biden administration has canceled those. So we absolutely need more opportunities for these apprenticeship programs to develop. And then in terms of balancing, so we heard from the last panel, you know, a contributing factor here, of course, is the increase in women's educational attainment. And that just shifts the trade-offs. Um, and there's also been a different you know, value that many people are placing on work and their pursuits of that. 
And so I think that when we think about women, they have more of a concern now that marriage could disrupt their careers. Um, children can disrupt their careers and they might be too expensive, question of whether or not this is affordable. Um, I have a slide here, because I think that the, the real question is how can you have more of the balance? Um, I don't like the message that you can have it all. You can have this super successful career and you can have all the children you, that you want. But I do think that you can have more of what you want to prioritize. And so we are seeing a positive shift, I think, in terms of work and the work opportunities that are available. Um, this chart is a poll by the Cato Institute that asks parents with young children, um, what is the single most important thing to you that would help you balance work and family? About 58% of people said something like a flexible schedule, ability to work remote, ability to work part-time. So by and large, it's not like more money, um, it's not more paid family leave, those things. It's just having the flexibility to work in the way that works best for them. So how can we help encourage that? Um, we are already seeing independent work opportunities thriving. This is, you can call it freelance, gig working, your side hustle. 39% of Americans participated in some form of that independent work last year. And this is particularly helpful for parents and also people who are caring for aging um, parents themselves because it gives you the autonomy to have control over your schedule. So of that 39% of Americans who did some type of work, half of them said they did the independent work because they were unable to work for a traditional employer because of either their own health condition or their family care responsibilities. Um, so this could be a thriving opportunity, but we are seeing in places like California and by the Biden administration's Department of Labor and in Congress bills that are trying to shut those opportunities off and to try and force more people into traditional nine to five jobs because they can be unionized. Um, so we need to have those opportunities open. I point to one example here is a woman named Monica Wyman in California. She was a stay at home mom for 10 years. Um, she had been trying to get some jobs as her children got into school and she had that time, um, kept getting turned down. She finally ended up at a florist office. That led to her starting her own floral company the way that she did that is she would hire her friends, other moms on the weekends to do the work at weddings. Um, but the state of California has put limits on that. And so those opportunities are not there in California and potentially could not be in the rest of the US. And then last is the childcare component. Um, that's the second biggest concern for families. It has always been the case that parents have preferred to have a parent at home with the child. That's always been the majority of responses. Um, but I think even more so now since COVID, and I have a slide here that shows parents' preferences for childcare for children. The first one is actually now that both parents work flexible jobs and are able to have childcare covered between the parents themselves. Next is one stay-at-home parent, and then you get to one parent part-time, part-time childcare. Um, but I think that the solutions here are to have more options for childcare um, so that parents can feel comfortable knowing that if it's somebody who is facing the decision of choosing life or not, that they have the assurance that they will have an option that's affordable and that they're comfortable with. Um, and then for parents deciding how many children to have, that there are better options out there. And there are certainly many ways that we can reduce some regulations at the state level. And one thing to particularly help lower income families at the federal level would be to allow parents to take their Head Start dollars to use at a childcare provider of their choice that would actually be a solution for a working parent and would have better outcomes. So I will stop there.
Pastor Angelins. Great. Thank you, Rachel. Lindsay. Great. Well, Paul, when you were calling everybody up one by one, I felt like the last lucky contestant on The Price is Right. You know, like, come on down. Um, great. Well, thanks for, for having me. Uh, it's really a delight to be here. This is such an important conversation. And uh, before I talk about two uh, reforms that I think would be critical to increasing the married birth rate, I did also want to add on to something Rachel said, which is one of the reasons we often hear people say that they delay childbirth is because of student loan debt. I do not put a lot of stock in this. Uh, if you look at median monthly payments, median monthly payments for student loan holders, it's $222 a month. If you work, particularly in a job that you studied to work in, uh, that's a pretty manageable amount. And if it isn't manageable, there are already programs in place that cap those repayments. So a bit of a tangent, but the Biden administration's effort right now to do backdoor student loan debt amnesty will exacerbate these problems by raising the cost of college. So just wanted to throw that out uh, to begin with. But on this positive solutions uh, in the education realm, which is what I study, uh, there are quite a few, but I think chief among them are enabling families to choose learning environments that they're comfortable with. Um, this is something that if families can't be confident that a school that they send their child to for six, seven, eight hours a day is safe and effective and most importantly, aligns with their values, that could impact their decision to have children in the first place or to have more children or the number of children that they ultimately desire. But this values piece matters tremendously. My colleague Jay Green had a, a nice quote on this recently. He said, education is one of the many things that society does to raise children to be the kinds of people parents and society hope that they will become. But importantly, as he went on to point out, since people have legitimate differences about what constitutes a good life and how children can be raised for that good life, there will be legitimate differences about the content, manner, and goals of education. In other words, parents have a variety of legitimate views about education that are best served through a system with lots and lots of choices. And so how do we make that happen? This is primarily a state and local issue, although there are some federal levers that can be used as well to make sure families actually have many choices when it comes to K-12 schooling in particular. Uh, one, of course, that is just catching on like wildfire across the country right now, uh, state after state are adopting education savings accounts. This is the next best greatest iteration in the school choice movement. In fact, we don't even call it school choice anymore. It's education choice because you can choose not only among different school, private school providers, but you can also hire private tutors or do online courses. You can uh, pay tuition part of the day. You can homeschool. Uh, you can buy curricula, textbooks if your child has special needs. You can use your ESA to pay for special education services and providers and therapies. So what an education savings account does is it gives parents control. It gives them that confidence that they will be able to craft an education that works for their child and is safe and effective and reflects their values. And it does that by directly funding the family. It gives that family the public dollars, right? There's no such thing as public money. And with Thatcher on that, right, it's your money. But it gives them their share of public education per pupil dollars that would have been spent on their child in their assigned public school. 
and it gives them directly to them in an education savings account. This usually, if you look at the states that have adopted it, means $7,000 per child per year. In the state of Arizona, that money, so again, your public school dollars, literally goes onto a debit card with your child's name on it. And at that point, you can use that debit card to pay for all of those expenses I outlined earlier, including private school tuition. So that, talk about giving a family confidence that they'll be able to choose a school that works for them. That is how you do it. Instead of assigning a kid directly to a government-run institution, you fund that child directly and allow the family to determine uh, what is a safe and effective and uh, values-aligned learning environment for them. So choice is imperative. But at the same time, we cannot abandon the content that is taught in public schools to the left, which is unfortunately what has happened for decades. We have to engage in the content that public schools teach as well. One of the areas in which we need to engage more is the success sequence. And this is something I know that we're all familiar with. You follow the success sequence, you graduate high school, you get a job, maybe you go to college, uh, and then you get married and you delay having a child until uh, you've accomplished that last step of marriage. And as Brad Wilcox and others at IFS have pointed out, 97% of millennials who follow this sequence never end up in poverty. That is a tremendous public policy, I wouldn't even call it an intervention, but pathway uh, that we know serves as a wonderful hedge against poverty. Public schools need to explicitly teach the success sequence, as do private schools, many of them already do. This is something that public schools can do not necessarily prescriptively, but descriptively, by explaining to students that if you follow this sequence, the data show that you will not end up in poverty, by and large. And so they should teach that explicitly. We surveyed, as did AEI, incidentally, both in 2021, we didn't know, we were both working on it, but we surveyed families and school board members about their feelings toward the success sequence and public schools teaching the success sequence. In the Heritage Survey, 72% of respondents, this was a nationally representative survey that we had an uh, external organization field for us, 72% of parents supported schools explicitly teaching the success sequence, as did, notably, 60% of school board members, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, in the AEI survey, their numbers were pretty close to ours as well. Again, nationally representative survey from 2021, 76% of parents support explicitly teaching the success sequence. And what was interesting in the AEI survey is they also looked at parents who did not follow the success sequence themselves, which they could determine because they hadn't graduated college or uh, had a child before marriage. Even among those individuals who had not followed the success sequence themselves, 70% supported public schools teaching it to students. So those would be my uh, top two uh, public policy reforms, funding families directly so they can be confident about the schools they have access to, and then having those same schools teach the success sequence. Great, well, thank you, Lindsay. Um, I promised the panelists before we uh, came into the room that they'd have an opportunity to uh, vehemently agree or vociferously quarrel with any of their fellow panelists. So I, I surely hope it's the latter. It's a lot more fun for the moderator. Uh, so I uh, wanna, wanna throw, uh, throw it open for, for that right now. Any thoughts on your fellow panelists' presentations? I'm trying to think of vociferous disagreement, but I don't really have any. <laughs> I appreciate the effort. Yeah. We, as policy people, we like to think about economic incentives. All those charts I showed on welfare reform 
show the effects of welfare reform happening before anything happened in policy. That, that be, occurred because of the extremely strong symbolic messages that came out above, from Bill Clinton, who said he was going to end welfare as we know it. It was, and everyone in low-income communities heard that and, and registered on it. It's the same thing with the success sequence. In low-income communities, they simply don't know that. And it's amazing, be, you know, that we don't teach that. Suppose we never taught anyone that they should graduate from high school. I mean, kids from the time they're five are taught, hey, you need to graduate. But we do not teach that about marriage. But in fact, marriage is more significant in terms of reducing poverty than, than graduating from high school. Uh, now we'll say, oh, he doesn't want people to graduate from high school. No, graduate from high school. But actually being married before you have kids is actually more important. But we don't teach it because it's against woke ideology. And this has been a very significant factor. And we actually need to have those messages come out in a way that the vulnerable populations hear it because they don't hear it now. They don't know about this. The success sequence is self-evident to people that have college degrees and everybody in this room. But it is not self-evident to the poorest communities in the United States. It needs to be taught and understood. Great. Thank you, Robert. Anyone else? All right. Uh, well, we have some time for audience Q&A. Uh, I think there's some microphones floating around. So please uh, put up your hand if you want to ask a question. Hi. My name is Gage. Um, I've heard quite a bit in forums like this that one issue with the marriage rate is that men are less interested in starting families today. But um, one thing I've seen on Twitter um, as a response to that concern is men raising the point that, um, you know, 90% of and I don't know if this number is correct, but 90% of child uh, custody cases, the child goes to the mother. 90% um, of divorces are filed by women. And so there's seems to be this concern, I think, especially among Gen X that, um, you know, the mother of your children could walk away from the relationship at any time and keep the children. Um, so is that maybe a potential concern that is not, um, you know, that's maybe going under the radar? Yeah, good good question. Uh, uh, Michael, Robert, either of you want to take that? I, I don't think that that's a very significant factor. The, the more obvious thing is that the sexual revolution said to men, hey, you can have sex without personal responsibility and commitment. And men said, okay, you know, <laughs> really? All right. You, you, it's a deal. Okay. That, that's really, and, and, the, the ethos of men has to survive that thing. And I think it's very interesting that the ethos of men has survived that in ways that, that it's struggling against that. One of my favorite statistics is that at the present time, 25% of children are born to parents who are not married but are cohabiting at the time of birth. And then of that 25%, half of them subsequently marry, perhaps five years later. 
uh, that that's roughly 10% of all children have a post-birth marriage of the mother and the father. Remarkable thing. No one could have predicted that 20 years ago. But it shows a lingering uh, commitment among a very substantial part of the population to relationships, okay, to sex within relationships, to childbearing within relationships. And that is a huge opportunity to take that uh, that population, one in four kids, and move that forward and get more of those those families married and teaching them about the success sequence, teaching them the impact of marriage on the kids, teaching them about marital stability. They're wonderful courses and pieces of information about how to keep relationships together, how to prevent divorce, because all marriages tend to go over time through dry patches. What gets you through a dry patch? It's a sense of commitment, okay? And commitment comes with, with, with marriage. If you're simply cohabiting and you haven't made a commitment, when that, that problem comes up in the relationship, the relationship tends to fall apart. All of that can be taught. All of that can be taught at closely to zero cost. Uh, but we have to have the willingness to do that. Michael, you want to take a swing also? Yeah, just really briefly, I just want to underscore uh, – Robert's point there that there's this cohort of cohabiting uh, uh, parents that should be, I think, an area of policy inquiry. What can we do to help get them into marriages? Um, they're they're a, a group that is ripe for uh, policy response. I don't know if we have that policy response just yet, but that is, but I'm just really quickly will just respond to this gentleman here. I do think uh, that that is an issue. I'll just give a, a brief story about how um, this is brought to IFS's attention um, rather frequently. We have uh, a, a blog where I think we posted one piece by a gentleman whose name unfortunately is escaping me at the moment, but maybe it's better that I don't mention his name because he was an, an object of much um, uh, dissent. Um, among our readership, I would get an email. It was on the men's movement. And I don't know anything, honestly, I really don't know anything about that. I don't even quite know what it is. But they would always respond. It was a critique of something called the men's movement. And uh, I would get an email maybe about once every few weeks of some guy just being like, you have no idea how much this offended me because I did. I lived right. And then all of a sudden, I was in divorce court. And my wife walked out. And she got all the money. She got the kids. Um, I do think this is a big problem uh, that the power imbalance here when it comes to custody battles totally almost entirely favor women. And I think that there is going to be, um, among other things that are, are causing men to retreat from marriage, I do think this is going to be one of the things where they just have a sense that their interests are not preserved in marriage and by family law. So that's something I think we need to address. All right, more questions. Time for a few more here. Yes, uh, now that uh, Roe v. Wade is over, uh, Matthew Quimpton, by the way, in those states that are protecting life, uh, do you, any of you, the panelists, see any sort of correlation between that sort of newfound respect or kind of love given to the family and how that might have a positive impact on marriage going forward in the future? No, I, I do think that it's, it is important to recognize that marriage is, is the number one factor in reducing abortion. Uh, a, 
pregnancy of a non-married woman is about 10 times more likely to end in abortion. Even cohabitation is a, is a very strong anti-abortion factor. Couples that are cohabiting at the time of pregnancy are half as likely to have an abortion as a, as a standalone single woman. So anything that can be done to stabilize and increase the relationships between men and women, between mothers and fathers, has a profound downward effect. And welfare reform, by making it less, yes, attractive, less utility, have less utility to be a single mom, dramatically reduced the non-marital pregnancy rate, and it also increased the cohabitation rate. Both of those factors brought down abortions, resulting in uh, roughly 10 million fewer non-marital abortions after welfare reform because of the pro-marriage orientation of reform. Other questions? Hand over there. Sorry, uh, J.P. Hogan, speaking to the Hungarian law, and then you're saying a con uh, an amendment's dead in the water. Originalism is seeming to be embraced, where if you're right from your creator, then the guiding law on that is what's in the scripture, and the First Amendment is redundant, whereas if it, Congress can make no law respecting an establishment, that would be Congress cannot change the Lord's laws. You already have the original definitions set out and you wouldn't need the amendment. So I'm just wondering how you would adapt it, maybe your comments today on that. Well, um, in A Aristotle's description of, of the human person is politicon zoon, and what that is translated as the political animal. It's just a, a, what he's observing there is the way that laws shape our understanding and uh, or misshape our understanding, which is something that was has been addressed throughout these two panels. So the value of a positive legal claim about the nature of something is that what it does is it accords with right reason and it affirms what we know uh, as it has been inscribed into nature by the creator himself. Uh, an, another way to look at this is, you know, as St. Paul talked about how, how uh, knowledge of God was written into the natural order. Um, well, law is our way of handing down our knowledge of God as we observe it in the natural order. So what I would say is that it's, it's honoring of our understanding of what God has made by placing it into law. Obviously, you have to be prudent about that because sometimes you can over-legislate. Um, but I think the value of, of um, the value of, say, tightening up divorce or in the Hungarian experience, the constitutional amendment is that very thing. All right, we have time for one more question, I think. Nina? Hi, Nina Schaefer, the Heritage Foundation. Um, so it seems like we've got the sequence right, but I think an open-ended question remains, how do we speed up that sequence um, so that people are getting married earlier and having opportunity to have more children? 
One of the things that I can point to on that is reform in educational options and reducing all the massive government subsidies that are pushing more people into college degrees. Um, the fact that only three in five students are completing a four-year degree within six years um, because you have so much money going into it and why not hang out a couple extra years? And then also the grad student loans, encouraging people into these things that are taking longer than they need to. Um, but alternative forms of higher education can help people get through their education experience sooner. Plus one on that, for sure. Eliminate grad plus loans. But I mean, and you know Nina well, but in, in my space that we are seeing so much dramatic movement so quickly, which is so welcome, right? I mean, we now have what I described earlier with ESAs. This is something that was a policy only conceived of or adopted in 2011. Mm -hmm. Milton Friedman conceived of it in 2006. Um, it's one of the last things that, that he put out there, still thinking about it that many years later. But so from 2011, the first ESA being adopted in Arizona, as of this legislative session, we now have 14 states with that policy in place, four of which just this year are completely universal, which means this fall in four states, every single kid in Utah, Arizona, Florida, and Arkansas will, and Iowa, five states, will be able to choose a school that they want with their share of public funding. I mean, this is unbelievable, <laughs> the speed at which this is happening. and and it, that it's just such a tremendous policy reform, universal choice. So at least in, in my little neck of the policy uh, woods here, we're seeing really dramatic and quick progress, which is great. I think that the larger issue is that the sexual revolution basically allowed men to have lives of per permanent adolescence. And uh, men have difficulty growing up. You may not have noticed that. <laughs> and. Uh, I always like to say that marriage and children are God's little gift to men to insist that they do grow up. <laughs> uh, I think we can have a greater impact by simply communicating that. Again, the communication of norms uh, is in fact very important in, in public policy. We like to this lever, that lever, this incentive, but actually the communication of norms is very important. And we should communicate to men, grow up. <laughs> and part of growing up is, is to stop Stop that a, a prolonged adolescence that seems to be running on toward age 28 now and uh, and get them to recognize that maturity means actually making a commitment to a woman much earlier on and be making a commitment to a woman is an a, a essential critical feature of being a mature man. That's a message that doesn't hit men very often, but we should we should give them that message and I think they have a potential to respond to it. And this is why we have to engage in the content that public schools are teaching. There are mm -hmm. 55 million you know, K-12 age kids, half of which are boys, uh, who should hear that message. And public schools aren't these values neutral institutions. There right. are very distinct So this is really like the male half right. of the success sequence that we don't really think about. It's the maturity sequence. Um, the National Institute for Fatherhood decades ago ran these wonderful ads about fathers and one of my favorite ads was the emperor penguin. The emperor penguin in Antarctica takes the egg of the, ba of the baby penguin and holds it on its feet through six months of pitch blackness at like 80 degrees below zero. And if it moves an inch, that egg will die. Okay, and any man that hears that, okay, you know, <clears throat> yeah, 
give me, give me that egg. You know, it's a, it, that is a message of responsibility, which we don't teach men anymore. And men have an instinctive ability to respond to that message of responsibility, as opposed to, hey, here's another video game. All right, well, thank you uh, very much for the questions. Uh, I want to turn it back to the panelists uh, for a brief you know, minute or so of closing remarks, if you, if you want to offer that. Well, you know, I think we, we've hit a lot today. There are low-hanging fruit policy recommendations that are out there. And, you know, I would just, and Rachel alluded to this a little bit earlier. I mean, this is not about, you know, creating, carving out brand new government programs in education. This is about taking the existing programs that are out there, the existing dollars that we're spending, and making sure that they're actually serving families by giving families control over how those dollars are used. And so it is a, I think in my mind, imminently reasonable policy reform to make. And, you know, to the point earlier, I think this is why we're finally seeing such rapid adoption of these options in the state. So, you know, the, the, um, the, the programs, the spending that are already out there, reforming those in such a way that it's, it's serving families and not perpetuating bad policy. And being from the Federal Budget Center here, I want to emphasize when we're talking all about this, um, there's often a question, well, shouldn't we be investing more in children? Um, and that includes you know, transferring more money, giving money to households so that it is easier for them to have children. Um, well, just starting off looking at our budget, we are spending $4.2 trillion in transfer payments. That does not include the tax credits um, for children. So that comes out to $32,000 per household. We are already spending an enormous amount of money, but it is money that is not the government's proper role and even the ways that we are spending money on child programs, things like the CHIP program, the EITC, we are wasting money. 31% of the money that's being spent is going to the wrong people. So there's so much that we can do to fix the programs that are out there and to better focus them and get rid of things that the government should not be doing. But in terms of investing in children, we are not investing in children. If we were to issue new tax credits today, it would be the opposite. Everything that we are doing is creating more debt for children in the future. Last year alone, we added $10,500 in new debt per household in a single year. And we are on that trajectory, assuming no wars, assuming no recessions. It's only going to grow. And so what we are actually talking about, if we are going to be spending more money on children, new debt money, is taking out a second mortgage in their name. Because by the time my kids would be considering having children, that's what their share of the debt will be. And at some point, it becomes unsustainable. We don't know what that is. Um, but then there's not easy choices that we can make about slowly reducing it. It's people are actually having to pay massive taxes that are gonna prevent them from being able to get married and have the number of children that they would like to have. I think uh, something that should be done is, um, and I apologize for introducing a new concept in my closing, my closing comments, but um, something that should be done is to uh, investigate the experience of military families because they're, is a, an instance of what you might call like a positive outcome of federal policy for, for marriage and family infertility. Because in the military, uh, all the benefits that you, uh, all the benefits are only um, given to uh, a married spouse as opposed to a cohabiting partner. And in the military as a result, marriage rates are are significantly higher than they are in the general population. So there may be a connection there. 
And so that's something we should in, we should investigate. Um, and, and I would say, in addition to that, to bring it back to my initial comments, one area where the military does not appear to be doing better than the rest of the population is divorce. So you wonder if uh, a lot of that treasure, which we are successfully spending in generating a, a pro-family community, is being wasted and spilled out because of the, of, uh, the nature of divorce law in this country. I, I think it's important to recognize uh, the relationship between marriage and, and birth rates. Uh, if you look at the rhetoric around declining birth rates in the United States, it usually deals with, goes from the last peak of the birth rate, which is around 2008, to the present, and it goes down. It goes down very dramatically. But when you look at that decline, actually 87% of that decline is in the non-marital birth rate, which goes down very st steeply, that's a policy goal. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's an explicit policy. That was something we wanted. And also there's a decline in the marriage rate. Very, very little, only about 12% of that decline is, is in the marital birth rate. So that just emphasizes how important marriage is uh, to, to all of these issues. And then with respect to the, the benefits and things like that, it's very, we need to make the current benefits that are, of, uh, are given out visible because they're largely invisible. The typical so-called poor family with kids that's identified as poor by the federal government actually has about $55,000 a year in cash, food, housing, and medical care on average. No one knows that, okay? Uh, the welfare state is deliberately invisible, and it, it feeds the idea that what we need is more subsidies, more subsidies. We don't need more subsidies. We simply need to use the existing subsidies in a way that's, that's pro-human. It's pro-marriage, pro-work. And if you look at polling, about 90% of the public believe that welfare recipients should re be required to work. About 80% of them believe that you should get rid of the marriage penalties within the welfare system. So there's a huge groundswell there for doing these types of rational policies if there's a willingness among the political class to do them. All right, well, great, thank you. Uh, everyone, please give a warm round of applause to our panelists. All right. I invite uh, Roger back to the stage. This will conclude our program. One final thought, especially because there are a lot of young folks here. I want you to raise eyebrows. Get married so young that you raise eyebrows and have a nice number of kids so that when people look at you, they're like, hmm, that wasn't a mistake. They actually believe in this stuff. So go raise eyebrows. Thank you all very much. There's no more important issue. And enjoy the lunch. Thank you to our panelists. <laughs>